This is the Breakaway Podcast, presented by the National Bird Hunters Association. The NBHA's Breakaway Podcast is brought to you by Purina Pro Plan, fine-tuned nutrition to promote strength and stamina in the canine athlete and longest standing supporter of the sport of field trialing nationwide. You can fuel your champion with Purina Pro Plan using various physical and online retailers nationwide found wherever pet food is sold. Purina Pro Plan, fuel the champion within. Garmin, delivering innovative GPS-enabled technology across diverse markets, including sports and fitness, outdoor recreation, marine, automotive, and aviation. Garmin, engineered on the inside for life on the outside. Gundog Supply, the leader in training collars, tracking collars, and so much more. Fast, friendly service, great customer support, and the newest Gundog products on the market. Gundog Supply, we train our dogs with the products we sell. Mule brand clothing and apparel. Outdoor clothing for all sorts of environments and conditions. From hunters and briars and wading creeks to forestry personnel, farmers, motorcycle riders, and utility workers, Mule is clothing for hunters, made by hunters for over 38 years. Find your Mule brand gear at www.okeydogsupply.com. Gun Dog Central. Gun Dog Central is a centralized location for finding your next dog, whether it be a pointing dog, retriever, flusher, versatile breed, hound, or even terrier, you name it. Gundog Central is the place to find your next canine athlete. To find your next champion, visit them at www.gundogcentral.com. Onyx Hunt, the number one hunting GPS app. Join the millions of hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt, know where you stand. And Park City's Quail Coalition. Park City's Quail Coalition is a nonprofit organization run 100% by volunteers who are passionate about sporting traditions and determined to make it available to future generations by working to sustain and restore huntable wild quail populations to encourage and educate interested youth and to celebrate the quail hunting heritage. Welcome back for the sixth episode of the Breakaway Podcast. I am once again your host, Joe Hopkins. So glad that you've tuned in. And if you enjoy this podcast, or even if you're listening for the first time, please take the time to tell a friend, like, subscribe, and review the channel to help grow and promote the podcast and the sport of field trialing that we all love. Our guest this episode is cross-country kennels professional, all-age handler and trainer, and field trial staple, Mr. Randy Anderson of Venita, Oklahoma. Randy has over 42 years' experience in bird dogs as a hunter, breeder, and competitor, with 22 years' professional experience handling some of the top all-age dogs in the country for his roster of established owners. Randy began his foray into field trials early on, serving in an administrative role with the MBHA, while later developing dogs early on for established owners and handlers, such as the Hall of Famer Robin Gates before eventually hanging out his own shingle as a professional all-age handler. Fast forward and Randy has won the Quail Invitational Championship, one of the only endurance stakes on the all-age circuit and most coveted titles four times and several other awards like the Joe Hurdle Award along with many, many more. Randy has handled top dogs such as Prairie Land Pride, White Dollar, 310 to Yuma, Future Stock, Hall of Famer Valiant, Hall of Famer Miller's Happy Jack, Touches Adams County, Touches Firewood, 
Speedway and many, many more. While being at the top of all-age competition, Randy is also a field trial history romantic and genuinely an advocate for the sport of field trialing at all levels while being deeply passionate about the present state of the game and its future prospects. But before we get to Randy, let's go around the field trial world. In NBHA field trial news, the Northern Missouri Field Trial Association's fall trial wrapped up in Martinstown, Missouri back in September. In the open shooting dog stakes, it was Hey, Mr. Tin Man, Pointer Mail, owned and handled by Kenny Snow, taking the stake. And in the amateur shooting dog stake, it was a wrap-up of Jack Glover taking the first two positions with Glover's Pepper Shaker, a setter female, and Glover's Flintstone, a setter male, respectively. And in third place, WW Triple Pick, Pointer Mail, owned and handled by Doug Meyer. And it looks like the country's favorite three-legged pointer female, Sadie, for owner Craig Hyde, took another gun dog stake. Congratulations, Sadie and Craig. In the horseback field trial world, it was High Rollins Bad Boy, a pointer male for Ed and Megan McKay, handled by Matt Bazalone, taking the Northeastern Open Shooting Dog Championship in East Windsor, Connecticut. Taking runner-up honors in the Northeastern were Way Better Rebel, a pointer male, owned by Bill and Muriel Prim and Alan Linder, handled by Mike Tracy. Bill Stapleton's pointer male, Ramblin' Rivers Natural, takes the 2023 Region 19 Amateur Shooting Dog Championship at the Namakoggin Barons in Danbury, Wisconsin, with the runner-up being named Allie Woods, 11th Hour, a pointer female, owned and handled by Adam DeLude. Once again, it's BK's Pablo Escobar, a pointer male, owned and handled by Sergio Velez, taking the Northwest Chucker Championship this time in Payette, Idaho, with the runner-up champion being Mox Y. East Oahe Jack, a setter male owned and handled by setter aficionado Alex Mock. Grove Springs, Missouri was the site for a Chris Cagle storm in the Region 5 Amateur All-Age Championship with his flagship bear Haney's Storm Warning Pointer Male taking the Region 5 Championship followed by Kennelmate Haney's Silver Dollar, another Pointer Male taking runner-up. The Carolina All-Age Jamboree bangs on this time with the Tar Heel Open All-Age Championship coming to a close at Hoffman with another Haney dog, Haney's All-In Pointer Male, this time owned by Steve and Stacy Croy, handled by Mark McClain, with the runner-up champion being Shadows Lord Magic, another Pointer Male owned by Carl Bowman and handled by Luke Eisenhardt. On to the Region 10 Shooting Dog Championship out in Fields, Oregon, it's Love Train, handled by Tom Griffin, taking championship honors with another Mox dog, Mox Waiista Wahi Dally, setter male, owned and handled by, once again, Alex Mock. Bill Westfall's Westfall's Wheels Up Pointer Male won the Oklahoma All-Age Championship out at the Ingersoll Ranch, handled by Andy Darty with runner-up being Mayfield Storm Charger, Pointer Mail, owned by Jack Davis and Scott Mason, handled by Alan Vincent. Some Red Setter action at the National Red Setter Amateur Championship once again back at Grove Springs, Missouri. This time it's Gratitude, owned and handled by Roger Bozer, taking the championship and runner-up champion being Quatonis Reciprocal, owned and handled by Kelly Aitken. Staying within the Red Setter world, the National Red Setter Open Championship, also in Grove Springs, Missouri, saw Gratitude once again at the top of the podium for owner-handler Roger Bozer. This time, though, followed up with runner-up champion being Firefly's Power Play, owned by Robbie Nesson and Dennis and Bonnie Hildalgo, handled by Dennis Hildalgo. Back over to Fields, Oregon, and this time for the National Chucker Shooting Dog Championship, it's once again BK Pablo Escobar for his owner handler Sergio Velez getting top ranks. Runner-up champion being Long Hollow Buckskin, this time also handled by Sergio Velez. Still in Fields, Oregon and still getting after Chuckers, the National All-Age Chucker Championship concluded with Pointer Female Affinity taking the championship for Austin Turley. And once again, a BK dog finds itself on the podium with runner-up champion being BK's Locked and Loaded, owned and handled by Sergio Velez. Back across the country to the Lacey Township of New Jersey, the Garden State Open Shooting Dog Championship concluded with Harbor City Sure Shot with taking the championship for Karen Lordy and Richard Gillis, handled by Matt Bazalone with Ravenwood throwing smoke, taking runner-up honors for owner Jones Sincota and Matt Balzone handling. Back to the middle of the country in Grove Springs, Missouri. It's this time it's the Southwest Missouri Open Shooting Dog Championship with Topps Hackberry Ice Chip taking the championship for Luke and Rhea Top, handled by Harold Gearhart, followed by runner-up champion Hell Smooth Touch, a pointer male, owned by Dr. Jeffrey Hale and handled by Sean Kinkler. The Idaho Open Shooting Dog Championship in American Falls, Idaho, saw Touches Jimmy Thing, a pointer male, owned and handled by Chris Perkins, getting the nod with runner-up champion Perkins Sawyer Warrior completing the double, a pointer male also owned and handled by Chris Perkins. Back over at the Marathon All 
Jamboree in Hoffman, North Carolina. It's Miller's Heat Advisory, the Pointer Mail, owned by John Mathis, handled by Luke Eisenhart, taking championship placements, with runner-up champion being called Touch's Shadow Rider, the Pointer Mail, owned by Karen and Bruce Norton and Dr. Reuben Richardson, handled by Mark McClain. In other walking trial news, the ABHA saw the regional championship come to a close in Berea, Kentucky, with a champion being called the Treasure Chest, a Pointer Mail, owned and handled by Cliff Monroe, with runner-up honors given to High Rollins, Gone and Done It, another Pointer Mail, owned by Warren Parrott and handled by Tony Bingham. On to Cover Dog news, the Wisconsin Cover Dog Championship had to be reverted to an open shooting dog stakes in effort to mitigate the risk of potentially spreading a kennel cough positive at the grounds. But first place saw Setter Ridge flash forward, taking first place for owner Brad Peterson, handled by Scott Chafee. And second place being Bad Habits, owned and handled by Ben Murgans. And third place going to Meredith Grade Corgi, owned by Dennis Kaiser and handled by Tammy Chafee. The Michigan Woodcock Championship came to a close in Gladwin, Michigan, with this year's champion being called Grouse Ridge Mags, handled by Scott Foreman, a setter female, with the runner-up champion being named Blue Ribbon Harper, a pointer female, owned by Marty Festa, handled by Robert Ecker. Also in Gladwin, the Northern Michigan Cover Dog Championship is in the books, with this year's champion being named Dunroven Susie, a setter female, owned by Chris Yeager and handled by Rich Hollister, with runner-up champion being named Shady Hills Whiskey Bonfire, another setter female for Shady Hills Kennels, and handled by Scott Foreman. Robert Ecker sweeps the PA Grouse Championship in Marionville with champion Dunroven's Midnight Ike, a setter male, owned by Dr. Peter Millett, taking the championship role, with a runner-up champion being named Grouse Hill Rambo for owner John Capoche. The 2023 Lake States Grouse Championship in Gladwin, Michigan was won by Llewellyn Setter Male, Bundy's Buckeye Molly, owned by Chris Sellers and handled by Zach Earn, with runner-up champion spot being withheld. NBHA dates around the bend include on November 3rd, 2023, the West Kentucky Field Trial Club will host their first walking trial at the Krause Kennel Grounds in Dixon, Kentucky, with entries closing on October 31st. November 7th, the AFTCA's National Amateur Walking Shooting Dog Championship will be held at the ever-so-gracious Keith Wright's Redwood Farm in Covington, Indiana, with entries closing November 2nd. Following that, the NBHA National Amateur Championship will directly follow at the same location with its entries closing November 5th. November 11th, the Southeastern PA Bird Dog Club will be having a one-day trial in Wellsville, PA at the York Pointer and Setter Club grounds with entries closing November 7th. Now, November 18th, one of the coolest and most innovative events of the season will be held at the LBJ Grasslands in Alver, Texas. The NBHA is partnering up with its tremendous sponsor partners, Park City's Quail Coalition, and will be hosting an all-amateur field trial with four stakes being judgment seasons at Flush, amateur shooting dog, amateur derby, and amateur puppy, but not before a 30-minute clinic on what to expect during a field trial presented by NBHA President Mr. Kinsella. The $65 registration has already been slashed to $50 per person for the clinic, and it will go directly to the Park City's Quail Coalition in order to help promote, preserve, and protect the quail hunting heritage in the state of Texas. But that's not all. There will be a raffle and tons of door prizes provided by our sponsors and meals also provided. Paul Ott and the Air Capital Field Trial Club will also be having plenty of stakes on November 18th in Atlanta, Kansas at Pike Farm with entries closing November 13th. Other field trial dates of note coming up on the calendar on November 3rd starts the NGSPA Pheasant String of Championships in Y Island, Maryland and the Region 17 Amateur All-Age Championship in Dexter, Kansas. November 4th will be the Region 13 Amateur All-Age Championship in Iona, Michigan. November 5th, the 81st running of the Grand National Grouse Championship and the 79th running of the Grand National Grouse Futurity in Gladwin, Michigan. November 6th, the Dixie Open Shooting Dog Classic in Union Springs, Alabama. November 10th, the National Amateur Pheasant Championship in Berea, Kentucky, and honor around November 11th, the Region 11 Amateur All-Age Championship in Hornitos, California. And starting on November 13th will be the NGSPA Texas Championship Series at the Bedrock Ranch in Hico, Texas. Also getting underway on the 13th will be the Mississippi Open All-Age Championship at the Hendricks Farm in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Be sure to stay up to date on all National Bird Hunters Association field trial dates and other field trial dates around the country at www.nbhadog.org or www.americanfield.com. Now let's welcome in our guest, Mr. Randy Anderson. Joining us now on the Breakaway Podcast is all-age circuit staple and cross-country kennels professional, Randy Anderson. Randy, how's it going, man? Doing great. Randy, um, home base for you where you parked the mothership is Venita, Oklahoma. Familiar with Oklahoma, but I have a feeling that's not where you're at right now because when we started this podcast, we knew one of the things we'd have trouble with is nailing some of you professionals and some of you guys that hit the road hard throughout the season. We're in the thick of the season now, now November. I have a feeling you're not in Venita, Oklahoma right now. Where are you at and what are you doing? Well, we're in North Carolina. They had a uh, good event here. I mean, we didn't do as good as I wanted to, of course, but we've uh, 
they had four field trials back to back and had some sponsorship and called the Carolina celebration and added some additional money and uh, some, some trinkets and stuff for the owners. And it's a, it's a, it's a start. I think it's really the future of field trials. You know, these things need to be made an event. That's, that's, that's what to make this. That's exactly right. And, you know, Carl Owens and his team have put in a lot of work and, and they're trying to get something flared up and going there. And they've done a good job advertising it and trying to get that going. And, and there's just a plethora of trials out there. So I can understand why a guy like you could take that rig and your, your clients' dogs and justify going out there for all those trials. You said it didn't go as well as you thought, and that might be the case. You did get a piece of a pretty hotly contested derby steak, though, with a dog called Quail Woods Pine. Um, you know, that, that, that can't be too bad when you have a derby that gets something out there amongst all those other hot derbies coming into their, um, coming into the field trial season, right? You're correct. And, you know, He's pretty special. I mean, you know, he was sired by, uh, by Touches Fire Away, and his, his mother is out of Valiant, and his grandmother's out of Happy Jack. So <laughs> he, there's a lot of connection. One of the things that, that I think is unique about him is he is, was Welp June the 2nd, and that's, uh, you know, he's just barely passed his birthday, and I was worried about him being able to be competitive this derby year, but he is really, really, his development has, has really came on. The spark of hope and prospect when those derbies go out and do – great things especially amongst the strings of your peers and their good derbies it just it just it just makes you look up into the stars and into the future and i know you know i talked to you a little bit about that dog earlier and it's clearly where your heads are at looking forward but that dog's here and on your trailer now randy but let's go back in time and help me and our listeners find out where randy anderson finds himself in the bird dog world to begin with what was your first dog and how did randy anderson find himself in this world well my uh i grew up in a family that bird hunted and you know i really never when i was young i never really paid any attention to breed or or sex it was it was a, a Lou Ellen setter or English setter or a pointer or a Brittany. And uh, I got some Brittany's that I bird hunted and I worked them and I could call them out of the kennel one at a time. Uh, they would back each other if one stopped and, and I almost had them really too mechanical. And I moved to Vanita and took a job at the fire department. And Ronnie Smith Sr. had the kennel in the same county in Big Cabin, Oklahoma. I went out there and started spending a lot of time with Ronnie and he asked me if I wanted to sell those Brittany's. And uh, he had an op- I had an opportunity to actually sell them to Conico Oil Company. And I sold them. He told me about a pointer that Leon Wilcox had in Hartsville, in Oklahoma. And I went down and purchased him to bird hunt. And National Bird Hunters was just getting started. And uh, he said, Ronnie, which we can go into that later, but that was my first really registered pointing dog that I thought that was, you know, that was a high drive type hunting dog. And, uh, of course, the National Bird Hunter started and I started competing competing with him in that. But but I, got, I actually got introduced to, to bird dogs with my family at a young age hunting, but I got introduced to field trials, you know, through Ronnie Smith senior. That's, that's amazing. Cause that's, that's not just a name that's, you know, on some people's minds and hearts, but that's, that's one of the legends in our sport that, that helped promulgate an entire family into the bird dog world on training and competition and everything else in between. And, and you being in that mix is unbelievable. I can level with you a little bit on this, on the scene that when I got my first dog that was registered with the American field. Now I've never owned a Corvette, Randy, but I felt like I had one. And I thought, this is a hot rod. I finally got a real dog here. And, and you know, the rest was history after that. It just kind of took me down this field trial rabbit hole. But it, it took that one dog in that right position and that time in life to kind of get you going. So who, who convinced you or who actually took you to your first trial, Randy? Because what I find is is most people are brought to field trials. There are people that go on their own, but more more times than not, somebody's drugged somebody or asked them to go or just caught them and said, hey, do you want to do something today? You want to come to a trial? How did Randy find himself at his first field trial? Where was it? Who was there? And what was going on? Well, it was a, uh, it was a big stake. It, uh, it was the Craig County Field Trial Association, and they held it in Welch, Oklahoma. And uh, it had a big open shooting dog stake with it. But at that time, I really didn't know the difference between an open and an amateur. But it was horseback. They had a big amateur stake, and they also had a, a, an open shooting dog stake with it, too. A lot of the pro dog trainers were there at it. But I was, I was taken there by Ronnie Smith. And then after that, 
I took a quarter horse with a friend to the Oklahoma championship. John Rex was running Oklahoma flush and I was young and uh, the quarter horse liked to kill me. I mean, we, uh, <laughs> we'd watch a little bit, canter, canter up, watch a little bit, canter up. Now I about killed me, but we almost, almost killed the quarter horse. I mean, it was rough on them also, but I knew that's what I really wanted to do, but I had, I did not have the means to, uh, to get a horse or a trailer. And I was young, had a young family, but I continued to, to stay around the Smith. I mean, Delmer, Ronnie senior, Tom, Rick was kind of in and out of the picture at that time. They were starting to do a lot of seminars, but they were really my mentors. And then one day there was a, a heavy set gentleman from Arkansas that, that came to Ronnie's kennel and said, me and this guy in Illinois by the name of Jim Hoy is starting this organization called the national bird hunters. And, uh, Ronnie told me, he said, this is going to be a big deal for the sport of field traveling. We need a jump start. This is going to be a huge impact to our sport. He said, this is a place for you to get started. Of course, I had that hunting dog, and he encouraged me to uh, to run that dog. But that was my introductory to field trials. And it, all that was within a few years. It, it, even it, I don't even know it was within a year, but it, it all really kind of grew together because I was like 20. And by the time I was 21, we were already running the National Bird Hunter Organization. Wow, wow! And you know, I've got, I've got always, I've got the same protocol when these interviews. I want to know how many years you've been in bird dogs and experience. And I know you've got around or over forty-two years total experience. You've been on the circuit as a professional. Took out your shingle twenty-two years ago. But one thing about your story, Randy, that I that I sure appreciate and that I'm thankful for, and that I think a lot of people are, you know, they they take pride in your story. And this is you. You had another career as a firefighter and you served a long time as a firefighter and then you found your way into field trials. You know, did you feel like you had accomplished what you could as firefighting? Because when I talked to you on the phone, you talked about somebody else that was a firefighter and you called them your firefighter brother. So I know that 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 profession, that service is near and dear to your heart. Talk to me a little bit about that and how you got bridged over. Well, it, uh, you know, the fire department job was was uh, really good for what I did because I bird hunted, you know, on my days off, which, you know, most fire departments have a lot of time off. I mean, we w- were there a lot, but. I worked 56 hours a week, but we did it 24 hours and I was off 48. That 48 hours, I was messing with a bird dog. Hmm. Why some of the people I worked with had air conditioning companies or whatever, but uh, building chain link fans, yada, yada, yada. But I continued just to stay focused on the dog. I did work part time in the oil field with, with my family. But for the most part, it was all eat up around a bird dog. And uh, during that time that I, you know, all the way through my career, I developed some field trial dogs. And the majority of those dogs went to, to, Ron, to, to Robin Gates. Wow. You know, some, some to known would be chain reaction, point blank, Bavara, yeah. and uh, ironclad. And then probably the, one of the most famous would have been point blank, which he'd want to get bit with. But those were all coming derbies, except ironclad. I'd placed ironclad in the national qualifying trial, and I'd also placed him runner-up in an amateur championship. But uh, the point blank, I won an amateur stake with him, put him on an airplane to Robin, and the, within two days, he won the Lee County Derby with him in Georgia. So <laughs> wow. We were track, but I, uh, I never worked for the public during that time. I kept my amateur status, and... Uh, the fire department and what I was doing really was was a good deal. But yeah, I did 21 years there, retired as an assistant chief. That's about as far as I wanted to go because I didn't want to go on straight eight-hour days. Right. I wanted that 2448. There's a gap, though. You're developing these dogs, and they're finding their way onto the major circuit, but that's there's a space in between that time, and that's a that's a stint with the NBHA. And i got to be honest with you, Randy. I didn't know that you had an affiliation, especially at the inception of our organization. And it was so far back that you were a 20-year-old a director in the organization when it was an infant. And I think the thing that I want to know is what was it about this new format or this new excursion? How was it going to be different to the other formats and who was it going to accommodate and what was its main purpose? The main purpose is what it set out to really bait the, to bait the hook was it was going to give an average bird hunter an opportunity to show his bird dog. And, uh, and but Dan Smith and Jim Hoy, Dan being from hot springs, Arkansas and Jim Hoy being from Illinois had came up with a plan to start this organization. But Dan, what I meant by bait the hook, it was to bait the hook, but he knew that his vision was it to be a class field trial type dog. Sure. And uh, 
you know, my Anderson's White Knight that I won all those consecutive events with in the state classic before the, the National Bird Hunters had championship. Uh, those were meat dogs. And there was even a dog that won, I don't know how many National Bird Hunter stakes that that dog won. And his, his name was Fool. And he was out of Arkansas. But I may be co- wrong and I may be corrected on this, but I don't think Fool was even registered. <laughs> and as, as we went into this, even in the early part of the growth, and I'll back up just a little bit, Ronnie got what what we had to have to have this organization is we had to have X amount of clubs per state. And then there would be a region championship like Oklahoma, Texas being combined. And after we got going with that and was having a lot of success, these were big events. I mean, tents were being rented. Hmm. People were coming from all over and then back rewinding a little bit, the bird hunter, the ones who wanted to stay with that type of dog, I may, I may be getting too quick. He had to conform. Hmm. And, you know, he, you know, I, I remember one time a guy went up to, to Dan Smith and said, we're not bird hunting. Dan said, you're right. We're field traveling now, buddy. <laughs> you're, going, you're going to continue in this organization. You, uh, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get you another dog. <laughs> and, and, and at that particular time, we were all hooked to the American field. We'd, we'd whip through that thing. And at the time it was Fiddler. It was ACAC. It was Mississippi rifle, wow. no, Mississippi rifle. And then we're with Will Wheaton, Fiddler with Freddie Rail. And those dogs were standing in the stud dog ads in the American field back there with pages. But we wanted that dog with that poker straight tail and their fiddler was. And we, uh, you know, I jumped on there. I mean, I went to the bank and borrowed money for my first, first dog. Wow. And, uh, but for brood females, for dogs that, to me to compete with. And, uh, you know, to give you a couple of examples, those first years, uh, you know, let's say that the National Bird Hunters, you know, was, was started in 1980. And I may be off a year. But dogs that were being competed in the National Bird Hunter Stakes, at that particular time, two comes to my mind that went on with great careers. There was a dog after Fiddler Ace called Fiddler's Ramblin' Ace that, that Raymond Jacobs bought from a breeder in Oklahoma. And that breeder's name was Glenn Miller. And he had bred the Fiddler's Ace, uh, a rebel-bred female. And that dog was named Fiddler's Ramblin' Ace. Mm. Won five open shooting dog championships after he was started in National Bird Hunters. And that's back when shooting dog stakes was 70 and 80. Wow. And uh, there was a dog, Dr. C.E. Ransom. When C.E. Ransom had a pro trainer running his dogs in National Bird Hunter stakes named Clyde Ashcraft, he had a dog called Levi Bridges, and he won 22 times, counting the National Bird Hunter Stakes, but he also won the Endurance Championship when it was three hours. Wow. He won the Texas Championship with over 70 dogs in it. And uh, that would tell you what kind of dogs, just within a few years, that we were trying to get through the National Bird Hunter Organization. And some people said it was a horseback dog that we were trying to run afoot. And really it was, but to, but to throw this at you, some of the things, Dan Smith had just recently passed away within the last few years. He went to a National Bird Hunter stake, and, and I'm not saying it was a negative, but one thing that he said, you know, that when we did start it, we had a 22-minute back course and an eight-minute bird field. And that bird field was a theater for people to watch. You could pull up on the tailgate, drop it, put your son or grandson on the tailgate, wow. open a Coca-Cola and watch dogs work. The unfortunate part, the dogs got real smart. They would be waiting on us in the bird field. <laughs> they would hit them horse tracks the way they'd go. So we came to sprinkle in the back course to try to stop that, but we continued to have a uh, an eight-minute bird field. Dan kept TV rights to the National Bird Hunter Association, all, probably all the way to his death. Wow. And he told me that uh, it wouldn't work because, you correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a bird field anymore. No, no. The, the format's changed to where now the birds are more or less sprinkled throughout the course. Yeah, 30-minute stakes. And, uh, you know, our, ours was 30 minutes, too. If you got to the bird field before 22 minutes, you were in that bird field a little longer. You wasn't disqualified for being in there at 19. You right. had 30, but you had at least eight minutes in a bird field. And uh, it'll that would allow it to have been televised. Yeah. And the other thing that was different, when we first started all the way through, the only people that were on horses were the judges. And uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind that, that I think that would be interesting is that we did end up having a horseback gallery. Mm. And But 
we were we didn't know really we had to we had to seek horseback type field trial judges we had andy and buzzy doherty they judged some of them early we had ld hayes that owned national champion while he's troubled yes awesome judge, judge for us but epperson who wow. was part of the old spunky creek kennels back in you know his brother back in the in the 30s but bud was also Dalmer smith's uncle and uh but Bud, Bud Epperson judged from Field House Force. And I remember Bud kicking out derbies. I remember uh, there was a pro trainer that from South Coffeeville, Oklahoma, that had some beautiful cross-match bred dogs. But they were broke. I mean, broke wing and shot. And Bud Epperson didn't use them. Hmm. And I remember him explaining it, that they were judged on potential and that they had taken all the potential away. And I also watched L. He, L. D. Hayes, who was a horseback judge. And a lot of us was somewhat stunned by that because we were trying to put too much pressure on some of these young dogs. And even to this day, you know, our, our stakes has changed too. It's taken a lot of fun out of derby stakes. I mean, there's not a lot of difference between a derby stake now and, a, and an open stake, but, uh, we had to have that direction to, uh, we had to have that type of direction to get the kind of class dog that we wanted to go forward. Now, fast forward and real quick is I wanted to go a different direction. And so did Dan Smith, who started the national bird hunter organization. We decided to get horses and, and, and go shooting dog or amateur horseback. And, uh, Dan had a dog that won a lot as a national bird hunter dog that won with Gordon Hazelwood and Jack Harridge as an open shooting dog also. Hmm. The, you know, that, that was really the type dog, but they were bred. The genetics were there. The foundation was there. And of course, back then we had a lot, everybody had a lot more wild birds, no matter where you lived, you know, you, uh, everybody bird hunted, but that was our vision. And I stayed a national director to try to keep that going, mostly because I was I was more like a puppet. You know, I was young. Dan said, look, I got to keep you on here. You vote with me. We don't want to change no rules. <laughs> and we kept the horses out. There was no scouting at all. I mean, wow. you got to remember the, the birds were planted to not get out of. You didn't need a scout. They were planted where a scout wasn't necessitated. Exactly. The birds were going to be 10 and 2. We were wanting a strong dog. But if he got out of pocket and you couldn't get him back, that was your fault. Same rule, same same standard that we have with minimum requirements. You know, if you didn't get a, in a 30-minute stake, if you didn't get him back in 10 minutes, he was disqualified. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the, the only time that we had a scout, was at the national level and it was it, it was two designated scouts i did it two years in a row i did it at, at conway when uh, fiddler's ace won it and i did it when Curvin's cloudy night won it and it was held in pine bluff well, i did it with a trainer named uh mike hicks who was originally from my hometown that moved on in, in in the hunting world and you said you said designated scouts randy and when we were talking earlier that, that kind of went over my head and then i had to kind of clarify it with you but th- these weren't scouts that really worked for the handler these were scouts that went out looked for the dog and essentially reported back to the judges yeah you know the, the, the bird planting deal we 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 had meetings on it to, to where we wanted these birds planted to where a dog had to reach you know had to hunt seek and find game we didn't want it right down the path so we we studied these courses to where we were going to plant them so we knew where they were the designated scout but what we did is we went and looked for those dogs and if we found them on point we would call point if they wasn't there we went back and checked in and said he wasn't there and it was in an area to where a walking dog should be we didn't ride a mile in there or anything like that or try to get one to the front it was actually two people that did not have a dog in the fight that went out looked for the dog either pointed and went back and reported that he wasn't or was or we'd call point from that area and it was going to be within so many yards right. and it really worked out good it kept kept things fair there was no cheating and uh, it, not to say that there would be, but there, there was no help to the individual dog. Right. To do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's obvious. One of the concerns with, with competitors, especially a walking trial is a scout's going to go out and drag the dog back or get it out of a situation. It shouldn't be in the first place. And granted that is, that's a viable concern. But in this case, the judge, the, the scouts were just kind of centuries. They, they were reporters or, you know, relayers of fact, they weren't necessarily totally apart. 
of that trial. You know, Randy, our game has changed and it's evolved. The format is slightly different. Like you said, we don't have a bird field anymore and we've got accommodations for handicap handlers on ATVs and horses. And, you know, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. But um, it's, 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 defi- it's definitely morphed into something that looks different from the onset. But I think I can say with some certainty, one thing that hasn't changed, or if it has, it's slightly changed, is the type of sharp and polished class dog that the organization is still after. And bird hunting is bird hunting. But like you said, field trialing is a whole nother thing. And, and I don't mince words when I talk to new people or people on the outside looking in. Our competitors and our dogs that are successful, they're that for a reason because they're some of the best. And they are genetically tuned and they are trained sometimes professionally, a lot of times professionally. And they are still the, the pursuit of a world-class dog. And you know I've said it many times, the, our top echelon in the walking circuit they could be very competitive, and they are in a lot of cases, and can easily win in shooting dog ranks. But we separate these things to accommodate different people, and we're in a pursuit in the National Bird Hunters Association to get the most discerning trialers, trainers, handlers, and hunters, but also introduce new people. And I'm blown away at how it's changed and how it looks different now and that you were a part of that inception. Um, you, you you end up, though, ultimately in the, on the all-age circuit, and you're, and you're one of our mainstays in that circuit. And I want to talk to a little bit about that, but talk about your, your transformation, your transfer from your NBHA days, you know, into that maybe that gray area where you're in horseback shooting dog as an amateur, where you decide, you know, it's time for me to hang out my own shingle and be a professional at the top. Well, during that, during that time, I was, you know, I was breeding a lot of dogs. I, had, I was standing Mortlack, which was a Rebel Hawk son that, uh, that Perry Michaels owns. And I went and got him, pulled him out of a, a kennel in Arkansas. Perry was an Arkansas Fish and Game Commissioner that was appointed by Clinton. And uh, he, uh, that wasn't what he did for a living, but I mean, it, they're appointed by the governor. Mm. Perry was busy. He owned a company that bought right away for different, different things, whether fiber optic or whatever, but he also was uh, uh, a lobbyist for the school teachers. But he built, he built the, those grounds with the help of some ideas from John Criswell, who was a politician also. But he, uh, he had Mortlack that he had bought and put it with Andy Doherty. And the dog washed out due to being too much dog. Well, they bred bred him before I had him, and, and he was the sire Barshu Brute, who's in the Hall of Fame. Yes, but I bred Mortlack, produced you know C. Doctor uh, C. Sanderson from the Carolinas had a champion out of him. After I had him, called Mortlack again. I had Ironclad out of him that that, that ended up winning championships. Uh, Simplify was out of him that won championships. At one time, when they were keeping stats, there was a guy that was a professor of mathematics named Frank Thompson. He used to keep the stats and he had the highest percentage of throwing champions for no more females than he had bred. But I stood him. And of course I had a lot of puppies. I was raising a lot of puppies at the time. And uh, the ones that I would pick to be dogs that would develop and go in a you know, string of, in an open string, Billy Wayne Morton had bought dogs from me before. There were some other people, uh, Weldon Bennett had bought back to back from me. Wow. And these were, a lot of these were out of more life. And that, uh, and then the ones that didn't make it, I had a South connect, South Texas connection. And of course there was a lot of bird hunters back then also, but so I, and I judged a lot of championships, you know, I would kind of got into the breeding part through wild away kennel through John Crystal and Lee West. who was a U.S. federal judge and everybody that I mentioned are in the hall of fame. And I was breeding for them also, you know, I had the facilities, had the country to, in the time to try to do some development. So we'd partner on some litters, but the, uh, Coincides, and you know, I met a lot of people judging championships. I mean, I was fortunate enough. My some of my travel I've judged stuff from from the prairies while I was at the fire department, Plum to Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, met a lot of people. And when I decided in two thousand one to hang my shingle out, I was I already had everything I needed: trucks, trailers, kennels, and the clientele. First year we I went pro, took fifty plus dogs to uh, Carson, North Dakota, with I had two helpers. Both of them were South Texas hunting guides, Aaron Allard and uh, Alan Sedley. And, you know, every year just been, you know, continuing to do about the same thing, same tracks, you know. 
Right. And that's how it got started, you know, and it, some of it was rough going in and actually, uh, you know, to tell this part of it, Scott Miller had moved on and Gary Keel, when I first went pro and went to Gary, I actually talked to Scott about some of the dogs that were at Gary's. I called Gary to see if he would be interested in, in getting rid of any of those dogs. And, and one, one of the ones that Scott Miller said, it was a dog called Highview Tribute who had won a lot in the National Bird Hunter Stakes. Uh, he said, that's the one you need. And I talked to Gary about it. And Gary put him with me. And I, uh, I was actually still at the fire department when I hung my shingle out. I went to the National Free-for-All Championship. And, you know, several dogs in it. Dog did a great job, made the callback. And then that July, I retired from the fire department, went north. And the dog came up sick and ended up having a liver cancer. But that dog would have made it. But at, mm. And he, his career earlier was a National Bird Hunter dog. Wow. And uh, that that was a big start for me. And uh, actually, that's how that got. After that dog died, I asked Gary if he'd be interested in purchasing a dog. And he really liked the dogs that he had a personal connection with through his breeding program through uh, that Fiddler line. God, I went blank. Honky-tonk attitude was yeah. out of it. But Fiddler Rocky Boy. Yeah. And you see that, that, that pedigree, that Fiddler Rocky Boy in a lot of dogs, you know. Oh, super, super prevalent. It's starting to find its way out of those you know, single digit generations, but it, it was not only a prominent sire line, Randy, the female families that are still around kicking and producing these dogs, you know, all across the board. And I, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think a large part of the pedigrees and shoot to retrieve even go back to him now. And you can find, you can find him nestled in there. It's amazing the impact that that dog and that family had and how far back it goes and how still, you know, more or less relevant it is today. And we're, we've looked back at your NBHA career, Randy, and, and it's, and it was, a, it was a good one. It was a flash in the pan and it was, but it was quality and you, you were helping the organization and being a part of its early history. But when I talk to guys, they essentially kind of divide their career or their, their progress into two categories and that's accomplishments and memories. And, and, you know, you're in the all age circuit, but you've been in all levels of it in different formats all over the country. But what are some of the biggest accomplishments that Randy Anderson has had up to this point? Well, you know, uh, Right after that dog of Gary's had died, Gary did buy a dog. And his name was changed. Gary changed it to Future Stop. And he had placed a few times with another handler. But I talked to that handler, and he said, oh, he'll pick up some third-place checks. And that's when Gary said, I think we need to, if he's got that type of stigma to him, we probably ought to change his name. So Gary changed his name to Future Stop. Hmm. That first year out, I had uh, I had went to, I'd taken him to West Tennessee and, and won it. There was a lot of dogs, 60-plus. And uh, I won that open all-age stake, and then a week later, I went to the Carroll County trial and won it. Now, these are open all-age stakes, right, not right. championships, and, and they were loaded with entries. If I said there was 75 or if I said there was 68, I may be a dog or two off. Wow. But they were big entries, bigger than what we're running in now. Right. And uh, that put that dog in the Invitational. And, and they listed him. I remember looking at the ad. They listed him at a ch- as a champion. You know how they used to put champion Miller's uh, Silver Bullet. Yes. Champion. Then they had champion Future Stock over there, and I thought, Wow, they don't even realize that he's not a champion because of those big entries. But <laughs> before, before we left that Invitational, this, this is kind of the neat part of the story. I won that Invitational that year. That was my first championship as a pro. And uh, I, uh, you know, I mean, that, that meant a lot to That's me. That's unbelievable to me. That's unbelievable that yeah. you're, you're, you're right out of the gate there and in one of the largest, if not the largest, endurance stake on that circuit at the time, still today, with all that history and all those all those great handlers and those legendary dogs that grace the walls there at Paducah in the clubhouse. Randy Anderson comes hot out of the chute and gets it with the first dog he puts on the ground there. Yeah, I was, I was braced. You know, a lot of my colleagues, uh, Robin being one of them, and some of the others were giving me a hard time because I was going to be braced with, with I believe it was uh, True Spirit with Farrell in the, wow. in the final. They were, they were trying to take odds on how bad I was going to get beat. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I, I had a, uh, I had a plan and I kind of told them and they said it wouldn't work. It worked. And uh, 
I won't go into how I did it, but <laughs> I, I used it to my advantage, and uh, it, it ended up being good. And then after that, you know, David Williams put Silverhawk with me. I won a championship with him. Ended up with Aaron Southern Pride early on, won with him. And uh, David Williams uh, had a dog called, uh, oh, shoot, Rebel Magic. And he had won the Southwestern weather, and I had an opportunity to run her, and I actually placed her in the West Tennessee the next year. And then David took her on and, and had a great career with her. A lot of those dogs go back to the David Williams and, you know, was the father-in-law of Jamie Daniels. A lot mm. of those dogs that David still run go back to a female called Hawks Royal Dot that we had bred to Mortlach and uh, that produced Rebel Mischief. And some of David's dogs all go back to that particular bloodline. Wow. But those, uh, that was the start of my career. And that, that winning that Invitational that year was uh, was was unbelievable i mean it, it that and going north and, and the history of it and the, the invitational field child to me is is the field child yeah. i remember when john john russell used to to when he did his introduction before the drawing he called it the best field child mm -hmm. and a lot of breeders you know used to hinge their breeding programs off the winners off of the invitational i mean you got the top 12 going at it for three days yeah it's not getting luck you know and you're going for an hour and an hour and then coming back for a two-hour callback and those endurance stakes are very, very important. And some of them have been wiped out. I mean, I think we need to go back to it. I mean, the free-for-all used to be three hours in Ellison. I think it's half that. And uh, without those endurance stakes, we're going to see a weaker dog as we go you know, into the future. You stayed early in your career when I asked you the question on your biggest accomplishments with Future Stock, that first one. It's, and it's just crazy that that dog won that championship in your first year in the Stars line. And that just kind of sets you on this trajectory, as I'd imagine, in your all-age career. But you've won that trial four times. You've won the Quail Invitational four times. And also... Miller's Happy Jack was a runner-up in, in 2012. So it's obvious that the trial is important to you because of your accomplishments there and what it meant to your career early on. But just like you said, the reverence of these endurance stakes and the history behind these trials, you know, you, you can't make this this these people and these dogs and the moments and what they did and how they won the trial, you can't make that up. And it lives in history. And like you said, you're afraid that these endurance stakes and these trials of great reverence are slipping away. And there's a multitude of reasons as to why. But, you know, there's a preservation that has to take place. And when I walk into Paducah and I look, one of my favorite things to do, one of the first things I do is I go into the clubhouse and I just go over those photos. I love looking at those photos, those invitational winners and, you know, Skyhawk and, and some of those dogs that were, you know, near and dear to me just as a fan. And I think about what they had to do in that Paducah mud in the cold and, you know, the competitors that were there and the other dogs. And so it's no wonder that that's one of your biggest accomplishments that's close to dear to your heart. But it wasn't a fleeting thing. You went back and you've taken dogs and you've won it multiple times and runner-ups and stuff like that. But, Randy, accomplishments and memories are two different things. Running on these in the prairies, in the piney woods, in edge country, and out in the Midwest, and sometimes in, in desolate places. You've, you've went as far as, I believe, Oregon. Is that correct? And running trials? Utah. Utah. I mean, uh Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. Nevada, yeah. Just you've covered the entire country. Talk to me about some of your most fondest memories up to this point. Well, I mean, the, the prairie's always been, you know, I, I love the prairie. I love Canada. And, you know, winning with Happy Jack up there, you know, when the, he was, at, you know, we had one runner-up with him before, but winning, winning at Mortlach with him was a, was a fond moment. I mean, with just minutes to go, I sent him as far as he could go and worried about getting him back. <laughs> because if he didn't want to come back, there was a good possibility he would find a way not. <laughs> and, uh, that's a fond memory. I mean, every time you win one of those championships and, but the Prairie was always, always dear to me. And those accomplishments on the Prairie, whether it be at Stoughton or, or at Manitoba, or of course, you know, Mortlack was probably one of my fondest places. And a lot of it, you know, the history at all those places I just mentioned is, is unbelievable. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the memories of, uh, and accomplishments of the Prino awards and, uh, you know, I'll go back to, you know, when happy Jack won runner up a dog that I ended up winning the invitational with the next year, should have been in there. Which I mean, is Adams I, County. I, I, Adams County had it won. And he, him and another dog hooked up off the breakaway, and they lost them. And we started 
right there. We put Happy Jack down in the way we went. Richie Robinson had a dog in the Invitational. Uh, I think it was Rapidan. Mm. And uh, and I may be wrong on that, but he had a setter in the Invitational. And he flew in and we worked together and went there together. And he scouted for me. And it was all we could do to get old Jack around there. But Jack ended up winning runner-up. But Adams County and Weldon Bennett had won it that year with uh, Coldwater Cold Warrior. Warrior. Yeah. and yeah. But, but Adams County. He uh, all he had to do was go through there and do you know and finish. He 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 was the top dog going in. Wow! And it, it allowed us to have an opportunity. And then the, I believe it was the, the very next year, Rick Peterson had purchased Adams County from Keith Wright, and and we ended up having an exceptional year with him. Got him in the Invitational and won it, and they also won the Preen Awards that year. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now summer camp. Correct me if I'm wrong. Randy is in Antler, North Dakota, or at least has been in the recent past. Yeah, we we cover a lot of area. I mean, basically Botton County, but my my headquarters is in Antler now. It was in Antler. I mean, in West Hope for about fifteen years, mm. and uh, housing changed. Country hadn't. I mean, country's changing due to the CRP coming out. But my training grounds is basically the same areas. Um, you you're quoted, and I and I, I picked this up from an interview you did years ago. But I heard you say, and it's just stuck with me over time that if you couldn't go to the prairies, you probably wouldn't do this anymore. And, and you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty distinct and strong statement there, but it just goes to show that your reverence along with your peers and the importance of the prairies and what they provide for your, you, your dogs and your clients. It's, it's clearly one of the pulses of the horse, at least the horseback segment of our sport. And there's all this talk, and I can't say that I'm abreast on it, but there's all this talk that we're losing, not only our prairie trials, but the grounds through which these prairies are being used for our training and the development of these future legends. We're losing all that. Can you just speak briefly on why that is and what can be done, if anything? Well, you know, of course, farm bills would help, you know, to, to make it worthwhile for farmers to, to re-up or to put, put country back into uh, large large portions of land in the CRP again. I mean, it's so important for nesting and uh, having that opportunity to work across that CRP and, and, you know, and then of course when the crops are out, it's endless country. But uh, even, even some of the places where, where it's native prairie, the, the grazing practices and stuff has changed and fencing's changed and, and, but it's, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, the key is, you know, we can't lose our prairie trials. I mean, it's the start of the season and the hopes of a, of a great derby. At one time I could, I could, and I, I think I could give some people some time. I don't. I cannot tell you one major circuit all-age dog that didn't go to the prairie at least once in his life. Wow. And, uh, that may have changed over the last few years, but a few years back, I, I cannot tell you one that, that didn't go with somebody. It's amazing. Whether it changed hands or, but but that prairie's been so important for the early development and, and the tradition of it. I mean, right. You know. And, and speaking on that tradition, Randy. Um, you know, not only have the have the prairies, you know, been a traditional place where the season kind of got started and where hopes are, are hopefully instilled in some of the young talent and dogs are polished, but it's an integral part of the game and it carries through the season. Those dogs take with what they get on the prairies and they take with them the rest of the season. And I know tradition has a has a really, really distinct place in your heart because a few years ago you undertook a task that was unique to say the least, but but large in scope and scale. You you took the John S. Gates, the famous dog wagon up from the prairies and had it completely restored and i believe now it's down at the bird dog museum and i'm just dying to ask you why why was it so important for that piece of equipment to be restored and viewable to the public well it, uh, you know to, to be honest with you you know when i when i took that on and there's a story how i got it it was basically getting ready to be moved and to a dump to where they could build a uh, a quonset or a, a machine shed and and they they were given another opportunity to maybe do something with it and uh, they went to robin and said you think john rex going to do anything with it and robin said no and i said can i have it robin said what are you going to do with this i'm going to have it. i'm going to restore it right back like it was and 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 take it back to oklahoma wow and, uh, so that's what i did it was it was restored and we kept it at camp i really never could get arrangements made just figure out how to get it back home and uh we would roll it out the the cynics you know which is a farm supply slash hardware yes. gas station, 
got in the northern country. They let me store it at their place, you know, under roof every year. And then we'd roll it to camp and use it as a photo op. And uh, we'd put it as a backdrop to visitors. And we did that for a few years. And then as, as some unfortunate circumstances, I figured the best place for it would be at Grand Junction. And I, uh, I thought, well, you know, I did this and I thought we got to get it back. And I called Scott Griffin, who, you know, was my owner with Happy Jack and White Dollar. And I said, we got to get it back. And he said, find somebody, find somebody to, uh, to ship it. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for having it shipped to wow. Grand Junction. Wow. That's, that's how that came about. You know, I originally did that to take Oklahoma to own it, but it, it's in a, it's where it needs to be. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And I can remember going into that atrium and putting my hand on that, on that artifact and, and, you know, thinking about the champions that had, that had graced those holes in and out all day long across the prairie, the miles that that thing had been pulled. And not only that, but the people that, that utilized it and the stories and memories that, that that piece of equipment could talk about, you know, it, it would be amazing. It'd just be amazing. And, you know, I, I just, on my personal behalf in the, in the field trial community, I'm sure as a whole, we, we, we just thank you for that effort because not only was that a great story, that's, that's preservation of our history and tradition. And it, and it takes literally getting your hands dirty to do that sometimes. And that wasn't, that wasn't an easy task. And I want to talk to you more, Randy, about some more history, but we're going to walk down this proverbial and hypothetical shed row in the kennel here. And we're going to look at some dogs that Randy has had in his career. He's had his hands on, he's cultivated dogs. that has been in the history books and will stay there. We've talked about one already. And that was Future Stock, the 2001 Quail Invitational Champion. Randy, your first champion champion winner as a professional, which is just mind-boggling still yet, but also an award that I want to touch on that you've had other dogs uh, win as well. But award to me that's kind of under the radar that I think means more than maybe what we get credit for, and that's the Joe, Hur- the Joe Hurdle Award. And that's the top point earner and top point earning qualifying dog going into the national at Ames. And you accomplished so much with that dog just in the small span of time in your first year. Yeah, and for the most part of that is because of those large entries. You know, and I placed him all throughout, and there's some bonus points with the Invitational. But, you know, there was a lot of dogs running back then. There was a lot of big field trials. You know, Continental was growing, you know, around 100, and so was the Florida. And Hobart Ames was growing in the 70s and 80s. So it was a great accomplishment to win that award with him. Right, right. And I think about Randy Anderson in the first few, in the first years of your career, and it's kind of where I'm starting to pick it up and really starting to pay attention and things are starting to be ingrained in my mind memory-wise. But the dog that really comes to mind early on in your career is Prairie Land Pride. Um, things that stick out to me is Prairie Land Pride was a seven-time champion. I remember reading about him winning the Mid-America Prairie Championship. But the thing that I thought was the best or the coolest thing is that dog qualified for the national from his derby year every year up until his death. And not the easiest thing to do when those entries are that big. You no, know, he was, uh, you know, just a little bit about him. He was the hardest working bird dog that worked, worked for me that I had ever worked. He was, you know, like I said, he was a seven-time champion, seven-time runner-up. If he would have been prettier, what I mean by that, he was, you know, he had a little, he was low in the front end sometimes. Right. And his tail wasn't poker straight. And that kept him with those seven runner-ups. If he would have been prettier, he would have been a possibility of 14-time champion. Wow. He produced the champion, and uh, he produced some winners. I forgot his numbers. But uh, I won in, you know, the Continental Derby Championship with him. So he won in the Piney Woods all the way to, to Mortlax. And it, uh, that's a special dog that can go to the Piney Woods. I won in the Edge Country with him also and uh, to win on the prairie that, that, that's a special dog and and i commend you just for that alone it, it's nothing to see randy anderson's entries literally all over the united states and you know a lot of our segments and a lot of our participants and competitors they seem to you know compete in their neighborhood or stay regional or stay close to where the circuit is the thickest but you know randy anderson is not afraid to hook up that trailer and go all over the country and you and you do year in year out and you know one of the dogs too earlier on your career that i also just sticks out in my mind like a you know like a traffic light is five-time champion white dollar and you told me and i knew white dollar was a champion on the prairie but randy you told me this dog won a stake that was just an absurd amount of money that i'm not sure people really knew existed back then in those stakes how much money did that win that dog win in that one stake in canada Twenty-five thousand, wow. and uh 
it was a this there was a, a big portion that not just the twenty five thousand there was an additional money i think runner up might have even been ten thousand wow richard Robinson and i was swapping out that that year he won runner up i won the championship so we both got a pretty good scout check on top of that so and Man. i just came off of winning at mortlack too i believe with happy jack at the same time and went on to manitoba and done some winning it was it uh Almost needed a Brinks truck to bring me back across the border. <laughs> Good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, we placed. Uh, we got White Dollar as a coming derby. Scott Scott Griffin was owner of him also, which owned Happy Jack. And in his career, I, I put the first win on him all the way to his retirement. He had twenty two open placements. I'm sure he won further south than this, but the dog won from Canada all the way to Boonville when he won the Southland. And yeah, you know, correct. anytime you can just you know circumnavigate the country and put placements and championships on a dog like that just speaks to their acumen and their talent and all that. Now I'm going to back bounce back and forth between some dogs, Randy, that just come to mind. And I, I want to get this one, give this one his due time and spend some time on him. And that's, that's valiant. That's, that's the dog. That's probably the closest on the register here with regards to history and accomplishments. Mac, who, who just stayed in the American field and on our cover and on the winner's podium, all these pictures, 2021 Hall of Fame inductee. He was the 2019, 2020 Purina Awards dog of the year. Another Joe Hurdle award winner for you six-time champion, 2019 Quail Invitational champion by Miller's Happy Jack out of that multiple champion producer who I believe name was Tina's Teardrop, who ended up being, I think, a blue hen pretty much with regards to production. But this, the accomplishments and the, red, and, the and the list of things this dog has done and the, and the neat little nuances attached to him, they just never seemed to end. And the more research I did, the, the bigger the list got for this dog, right? Yeah, I tell you, you know, one of the things that's dear to him is, you know, you pick him out of the litter. You know, he was a stud feed puppy. And uh, he was with me, and I was working him in Conway, Arkansas, uh, getting ready for a field child and he was about seven months old and, and they run the buck tuck at Conway that year Jamie Daniels come up and he was working at a plantation and I, I told Jamie I said won't you take this dog back with you and that was the end of December and uh, he took him to the plantation and flocked him with some other dogs letting him off the chase and I got him back during the national so he was with Jamie from December to February before his, you know it turning to be his first birthday cool and uh, then he went north I can take you a matter of fact I sprinkled some of his ashes where he first place he ever pointed to shark El grouse how cool yeah, two different places. My favorite place is in Surrey, North Dakota, up on some big hills, and uh, when then the other half went right where he pointed his first sharp tail. But he uh, had a great personality, a unique look. Yeah, uh, unique. I just remember him being like a piebald looking dog. He, he just solid white body, solid white head, and then those two liver ears or whatever color they were. He you could pick him out, you know, in a lineup really easy, uniquely kind of marked. Yeah, he had. Uh, I tell you, he was. You know, I, I, I was working him at Mr. Farrell Miller's. And, he was running all over. Mr. Farrell made a statement of how, how attractive he was moving and his gait and everything. And he was running pretty big. And Mr. Farrell said, you need to crank down on him, you know, being out of jack. And, and you need to get on to him. You know, you need to start getting into him now. Mm. And I did. And if there was a negative early, I, he might have been on a little bit on the short side. And he always just did enough. You know, the best part about it is I had a very, very supportive owner on that dog. Right. I would tell him, just wait, just wait, just wait. And the rest is history. You That's know, we, we won the runner-up in Canada with him and then placed him in Canada, won the Man probably the last Manitoba championship that'll ever run. Yeah, twenty twenty, I think. And yeah, yeah. He had a, I think it was ten ten wins that year that he won the Preen Award. And like I said earlier, he was a Joe Hurdle Award also, you know, award winner. Randy, he he won all four championships he was entered in in the twenty nineteen, twenty twenty season. And that was the Oklahoma, the Manitoba, the Southland, and the Quail Invitational. Um it's one thing to get a championship throughout the year, but it's another one to knock off all four that you're in. And that, that's just unbelievable. And here's another dog that wins from the prairies in Canada. He goes to Oklahoma and wins the Oklahoma championship in 2018 or 2019 and then goes on to start cementing this 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 career. But, you know, what I find interesting is he made his first appearance at Ames, I believe, in 2020. How old was he when he first went to Ames? I believe he was getting he was either six or seven. Wow. Yeah. And he had uh, 
kid won the Oklahoma championship back to back. He, you know, two years in a row. Oh, okay. Back to back. That's where I'm, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Okay. All right. And the, uh, he, you know, he went three hours, you know, and we were very, very, you know, we didn't win it, right. you know, and, and we've been asking, 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 you know, there's no need to go and, go into sure. hash over anything, you know, it's, it's opinions, right. but I mean, to watch a dog get it out in those conditions, it, uh, a very dear friend of mine, who's a client also, when he talks about that performance and he's a big, strong guy, yeah, yeah, there's tears that comes in his eyes. Amazing. And, uh, it was a, uh, it was an exhausting three hours, but to watch that dog get it out, you know, was, uh, is unbelievable. And, he uh, was bred very little, and you know, it, maybe one of the, <laughs> I hate tooting somebody's on it, but one of the best dogs I've seen in my 42 years of career is out of him. Yeah, you know, at this particular stage of life, is Haney Stormwater. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, he just today I just seen where he had won uh, the Hell Creek Open, and a week ago we won Region Five, and it ain't going to end. I mean, it's no, it, it, you you were waiting for this dog to cool off, and it's just yeah. it's just not going to happen. And I had several friends at the Invitational last year that got to watch him run. And, and I mean, if they could have put their jaw dropped in a text message, they would. And I wrote down a cool note here that I want to share with you with regards to Valiant as a sire, because it's clear now that, that Valiant could be one of these specimens that makes his mark on the breed and really starts to set the bar with regards to production, the dogs that we're going to see in the next generations of competition. He sired the 2022 All-America Derby champion and the runner-up champion there out at Pyramid and in the dog that you just mentioned, Haney Stormwarning, who won it. And I'm Gallant who you handled. So he sires both of those dogs that win, you know, what I assume is a hot contested derby again. He's established Haney Storm Warning as this potential giant in our sport. It looks like it's going that way. But then in the same year, he sired the Don Fox Open Derby winners in Missouri with Storm Warning again winning that and Knight's Little John who won that. And then funny enough, at that same trial at the Missouri Open Championship, you won it with Bonner's Bulletproof and got and got runner-up with Touches Fireway. Is that is that as satisfying as it sounds to have this dog that you've had your hands on, that you developed, that you campaigned, that you believed in, to, to not only do what he did while in competition, but now passing on these coveted genetics that look like is going to make waves in our sport? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, the breeder comes out in me. You know, I mean, I was a when I was a firefighter, I was a breeder, you know, and, and was trying to develop dogs and, you know, to try to pay for my, my field traveling. So, the breeder never comes out of me. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Storm Warning. You know, I want to beat him, but I'm also I'm proud when he wins. Sure. And, you know, to correct you on something, I think you know, I think we touched base on it. I Storm uh, 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 Night's Hill Little John is uh, he's not out of value. Oh, okay. I, did, I thought he was. No, he was. I'm not sure what he's out of. He was developed by Ike. That might have been a misprint. Okay. But the uh, uh, I think he did place in that field trial. Though. But the uh, but I think it would have been Ike Todd, and if you know, not he may be speed dial or something, which is that happy Jack line. There we go again. Another dog that you've had in your string. Yeah. And it's a, you know, Bonner's bulletproof out of happy Jack. And yeah, winning those back-to-back trials are hard. You know, I won Kansas one time with no runner up with uh, Aaron Southern pride. Those are great accomplishments, but yeah, I, the, the breeder part of it, you know, and the, and the sea dogs, no more than Valiant was bred. I mean, the region seven, uh, walking shooting dog champions out of him, you know, belongs to Mr. Sour, you know, I think that dog's name is KC's tie one on tie one on one or something. Tie hmm. one on. Yeah. Casey's tie one on is, you know, that's a, that's a walking champion out of Valiant. Oh yeah. Yeah. That that's Ken Sowers dog. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, there's, there's a list of winners, but I tell you another thing that's going to be an impact, you know, just like the dog that placed here in the Derby. I've got two derbies right now, you know, one out of Fireway and another one out of a, a dog. It's an owner had that we had Dixon's Rolling Stone, but they're both out of Valiant females. I think the Valiant female line is going to have an impact also. And there's probably more of them out there than there are males that's going to be ran. So, right, and and that's the sign, Randy, of, of in my book, a, a, a potent sire. It's it's one thing, you know. It's like in the horse world, we do have stallions that throw colts, 
and some stallions just throw good fillies. But the ones that throw both, and then those females go on to be matriarchs of broodmare families in the same way broodbitch families, that's how you know a sire has stuck in my book, is when they not only just get you know stud dog after stud dog, anybody can stand a stud dog, but it's that broodbitch female, that blue hen, that everybody wants a pup out of. That's how you know to me that a, that a sire really stuck. That's one thing I learned you know, from John Criswell is, you know, is, is you're in the, you're in the, you're, you're real, you're in the racehorse industry is behind them good sires. You'll see them blue hen females every time. Absolutely. And at least the majority of the time. And, and I'll tell you another thing about sires that, that, that you got to have likeness to that sire too, to get that type of dog. And if he's a, a livered up rebel dog and you're trying to breed a rebel dog and they come out snow white, you didn't get a rebel dog. That's exactly right, Randy. That's exactly right. And it's the same kind of concept when I'm looking at horses and yearlings, especially, I, I really want to see either the sire or the dam come out. I want to see one or two in that frame because, you know, true or not, it makes you at least feel like that whatever genetic material is there on the sire or dam side, one of those came through with the aesthetic part of it. Yeah. The, the, the best part about what you're doing and what we do I mean, at least you're a horse you're looking at the individual that's going to drop where you've got a litter of maybe eight. Yeah. It's going to be a throwback to something in that pedigree. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's bad enough to try to pick one out of a litter of eight that's going to be the competitor, but, you know, it, picking one one yearling out of one mare, I mean, it is what it is. It's not like you got seven others to look over. That's, that, that's, a, that's another point. And I do want to correct myself, Randy. I just conferred with my staff here, my, my research staff, which consists of myself. And Knott's Little John is by Lester's Storm Surge, and it was a typo in the field that I had found that. So, um, but Scott Griffin, I think, owns that dog as well, too. Um, oh, yeah. So another tie another tie with you right there. But So that's Valiant in the history books. We've got another dog, though, that's going to live forever in the history books, and that's seven-time champion, seven-time runner-up champion, Hall of Famer, Miller's Happy Jack. He's by Lester's Bandit out of Twist, which was that champion, white, I think Miller's White Powder uh, female named Twist. You know, the accolades for this dog, too, they just go on and on. And correct me if I'm wrong, was he a full brother to uh, 310 to Yuma? No, his, his sire was. His yeah. sire was. Okay. I knew there was a connection there somehow, but um, – he was runner-up at the Dominion Chicken, and he was a champion in Mortlack, like you said earlier, that they don't even run anymore. Uh, runner-up at the Quail Invitational, you know, behind, like you said, Weldon Bennett's Cold Water Warrior that year. This this dog is is very, very, very special to you, Randy, and we spent a lot of time in the lead-up to this talking about him, and, and I can see why, but there was this haze or this kind of stigma around Happy Jack that he wasn't maybe the easiest of customers to deal with. He was maybe a little bit self-employed, but when you look at these accomplishments, you wouldn't think that that's maybe the case. So clearly you and Happy Jack got along. How did you do that? Well, a little of it, you know, is try to look at the whole picture, what might have caused, you know, the self-employment. And I've always said a dog, you know, is going to leave you, run off or whatever you want to say for two reasons, either to self-hunt or to escape pressure. And uh, so the thing that I figured we needed to do is take some of the pressure off and try to have more engagement, you know, with a dog and uh, and try to build a rapport, but not to where he's taking advantage. And I know that may that might sound funny, but, you know, our whole world is protected by a dog. It's been it's been lured by either food or a tennis ball or some yeah. type of, you know, that's protecting you and I and everybody around us, you know, right now. And so I take a little bit of that. And through high school, I was involved with a guy who trained some, some working dogs for the Tulsa police department, but I take a little bit of that and use it on some of these dogs, but I did on him, moved him in the house. He had rules wow. and uh, there was rumors where he was sleeping in a bed and all that stuff. None of that is correct, <laughs> but, uh, there, 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 we did have to take an approach and approach, you know, uh, he had gone through a lot of, long heating and what i mean by that i mean he, they would keep him down on the ground a long time and, and we did too that was part of part of the regiment but we kept it mixed up we may have a good workout where he pointed it had a, a find or two in 30 minutes or it may have been 15 minutes to pick him up put him in a road and harness. but everything was positive and trying to get an engagement you know walk in a kennel if he turned take the dog pan make him come around you he had to always look at me to get his food he had to work for it we had to engage 
and that's the way he ate. He wasn't on welfare. I didn't throw it down there and just let him eat it. <laughs> Super interesting. It, it, uh, it, it, it was an approach I hadn't taken much of, but, you know, we, we did take a different approach then, but try to be his buddy. And it was, you know, it, it did wear off some as time went on, but he, uh, he did what he wanted to do, but we, we did have a lot of success with him and we believed that he would be a sire. Uh, they, they didn't breed team much that year or two before we ended up getting him. You know I mean? He produced champions Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we had him also. So that, uh, but those Stroud dogs like that is, is you know, you're a, you, you follow the horse industry. The best sires that I've been associated with were almost outlaws, if not outlaws. Yeah, that's, so, that's really interesting, though. I, and I had, a, I had a conversation about Dr. Stan Wynn somewhere along those lines, and you, you take those attributes, and although that's not necessarily desirable, but chances are when you breed, things regress towards the mean. And that dog may be an outlier in the sense that he runs off the edge of the earth every time he's cut loose. But chances are there's a good chance that his progeny or some of his progeny are going to regress towards the mean. And when that happens, you're going to get something that's manageable or a little bit more desirable than what the sire is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a breed down deal. It's hard to throw one as strong as the individual. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and not to take anything away from the shooting dogs or anything, but that, you know, in the past, that's why a lot of, you know, everybody was breeding to an all-age dog to try to get their shooting dogs. And, sure. and I'm going back a while. I mean, Rebel Hawk is in a lot of, in a lot of pedigrees and he had one runner up championship on him. He wasn't a champion, but he, uh, I mean, from Whippoorwill rebel, uh, Mortlack, you know, a lot of those rebel dogs, you'll see rebel hawk in there. And he wasn't, he wasn't a popular breeding dog either. That just kind of come, but he was an outlaw. You know, he wasn't runner up in the continental. Oak. His runner up was a good, one. Mm, but, mm. Uh, but the, uh, the, the ironclad, you know, I, w- I was trying to stand ironclad as a stud. And John Crystal told me that I was promoting him as a stud dog, that he wouldn't, wouldn't be a breed on type dog. I didn't pay much attention to him. And, and I, we bred several females to him, and he, he didn't produce. He produced some, but not not like I figured he would be in a Mortlack son. Mm. He was almost all white with with some orange markings. And Robin had won some stuff with him. We got him back to breed team after he, even his retirement. Actually, he lived the rest of his life at Abergale Plantation with Tom Shanker. Cool. But uh, but he didn't have likeness to that pedigree. You know, the delivered spots. David Williams had a dog named Rebel Mischief out of Mortlack that looked like a Ramblin' Rebel. Oh. Maybe been colored up more. And he was a champion producer. And it. Uh, because he had the look of the pedigree sure. and so that nothing really i mean i don't want to bore anybody on the breeding part of it but that that that's the way i've always seen it and it's it's pretty much if you look at it that's the way it's always done too yeah yeah and you know breeding and miller's happy jack they go hand in hand jack you know as a sire just to mind he's the sire of national champion miller's dialing in and grandsire of, of dunn's tried and true and i think miller's speed dial so you know, those genetics obviously are potent and they're going to carry through and help fill out pedigrees from here, there, and yonder. But, you know, that's one prefix dog that, that's been good to you. But there's another prefix line of dogs, Randy, that's also been good for you. And the first one I want to bring up to you is Touches Adam County or, or Bo, as you know him, who come out of that, that Keith Wright, Ike Todd program in about 2013, I think, when he hits his string. And then it's just off to the races after that. I believe he was the 2013-2014 Purina Award Dog of the Year, another Joe Hurdle Award winner, multiple champion, 2013 Quail Invitational Champion. You know, he got it done. I know he was runner-up in Manitoba at least. And, you know, one of the things, that, one of the stats that I like about your dogs and other dogs is how many times they ran at Ames. And this is a dog that, you know, could have rented a condo down there at Grand Junction because he ran seven times at Ames. Yeah, he, uh, you know, even even right before his retirement, you know, he placed in a Cajun. I mean, when he, when he had some age on him and he, uh, he was his personality was a little different than some. I mean, he was he was kind of a cold dog. He wasn't shy or nothing. But you know, you probably heard this before. You could bring Jack in a motel or in a put him in the truck or bring him in a house, and you'd think he had a poodle. He'd he'd curl up on a bed <laughs> or uh, you know get in a dog bed. Oh, oh Adams County just stand there looking. Yeah, like, you know he 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 was froze. And you try to warm up and make him stand there. He just never did like it. He just seen you not petting. Yeah, I've I've got one like that, and it's so it's so interesting. He doesn't hate you, and it's not like he doesn't like you. It's just like. 
you're just not a big deal to him and he doesn't need his head scratched and he don't need you to pay attention to him. It's not that he's ignoring you. He's just kind of a, you know, just kind of on his own. No. And then, and that type dog, you know, uh, you try to warm up to them and you try to let them start jumping up on you or, or doing different things. And next thing you know, they're coming unglued on you. They'll take advantage of you. Yeah. So the best thing to do is let them be themselves and continue your, your balance. You know, you need to be balanced through your program. Right. Not all these dogs. I mean, every one of them are different and, their eating habits. I mean, if you're feeding four cups, the majority of them is getting four cups, but some of them don't. Some of them getting this, some of them getting that. Sure. And, uh, but, you know, every one of them's got some, some tendencies that we've got to try to deal with. And that was one of his is, you know, keep him in a kennel, you know, mm-hmm. and, and don't let him jump. Cause I can use that as an example, you know, let him go to jumping up on you and trying to be your buddy, jump up here, good boy, and feed him a weenie. Yeah. Next time out, he, t- he reared back and knocked him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, end up getting back into him, letting him be himself and you know, didn't have no problem. He wasn't a great backer, you know, but he, uh, either was Jack, but you just got to deal with those type dogs. You know, if he'd have been cold cause he didn't back, there wouldn't be no happy Jack. Yeah. And, and those alphas, some of those alphas have a tendency to be that way. You know, if they were a pack, you know, dogs like dogs like them would probably be the pack leader. And, and you know, that's, I think that's why sometimes their mannerisms are, are, are kind of, are kind of oriented that way. But there's, there's another, and there's another dog as we kind of go down the shed row, Randy, another touches dog, uh, the 2020, 2021 Purina dog of the year award winner here again, another Joe Hurdle award winner out of a quail invitational winner in houses ring of fire. And that's touches fireway, multiple champion, um, 2021 winner of that invitational won all the way down in Alabama and that open all age championship. And I think he won that twice a runner up at that coveted mid America and a champion and runner up at the Missouri open all age championship. And this has been a program in a line of dogs and breedings and people, you know, that, that have been really good for your program. This dog too. Yeah. The, the, the Keith Wright breeding program and I taught development, you know, I'd stand in line all day long, you know, and I've always liked the ring and fire dogs because of Keith and I've talked about it. I like that hustle. They can be a little mean. I'm not, I'm not talking about mean about growling. Oh, I know what you mean. They're, right. little, they're a little hard to break. But man, one thing you do get out of them is you get that hustle, you get that pop, that fire, that high cracking tail, and that that desire to go hunt and find game. And the rest of it you can mold. But that uh, Keith Keith is, I, you know, I, I could sit here all night long. But but that combination between him and Ike, it's unmatched. I mean, I sit here and look at this field child that I'm sitting at, and the ones that have an Ike Todd connection is unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, it it you know, hey, that'll end up being another podcast one of these days. I'm sure. So I won't touch on it. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but that uh. Those touch dogs has been good. You know, Spaceman died early, yeah. and uh, he, uh, you know, I'd won with him in Canada, uh, qualified yeah. for the Nationals as a first-year dog, and he uh, he was stout. He's another one that didn't have – some of those Ring of Fire dogs are a little funny, and he was funny. I mean, they're not not shy by no means, but they're not warm dogs. Now, right. Fireway is. Fireway loves people. Oh, interesting. Cool. That's neat. He's a, he'll, he'll work for you. I mean, he's he's not – old Spaceman now, he, he, he could – I mean, he can knock the pine – pine uh, needles yeah. off these trees <laughs> well what about what about what about a dog that rick peterson owned and put on your string for you he bought him as a first year dog that later went on to be owned by john and jackie harkins and that's and that's touches blackout who i know i think just recently passed away maybe back in june and july back at keith's where he kind of went to, i guess to live out his last few days or months or years or whatever it was what about touches blackout he uh he was good uh great edge running dog great personality uh uh you know he was one of one of the few champions out of whiteout you know and he uh but he was out of a champion producing bitch. You know, she produced champions out of Happy Jack, Game Point, and and another one uh, that that was out of her. I'm trying to think of the other champion that was out of Happy Jack and her, and then bred to touch his Whiteout. To yeah, produce. and, and Whiteout died way too early. You know, Whiteout had a had a pretty good run at some of the stock that hit the ground while he was in his stud duties, but he he died way too early, and I don't feel like we got the full effect of what he was capable of. Um, you know, as a sire. No, that's that's, that's exactly right. And he uh, he was for, out of a. He, he that dog would work for you. I mean, he would didn't have the greatest nose, and you know, of any dog that I've had, but he he put a lot of effort in finding game, 
and uh, had an unusual marked head. But we had, you know, we he, he had the invitational one, and it ended up I flushed a bird right underneath his belly with it, with minutes to go, and uh, that would have been another invitational win under our belt. But wow. you know, twenty twenty. But that he was he was a real good dog, and, and, and the, the connection Keith Wright and Ike Todd. Mm. Yeah, there we go. Just the, the list, the list of those dogs and their accomplishments just keeps going on and on. I will add this. I want to add this. He he said, you know, we took him north, and and uh, Rick thought, he, you know, his career was over, you know, because of age. And Jack and uh, Jackie and John Harkin, I asked him if they'd give him one more chance around the block, and he had been setting. And uh, we ended up, uh, I ended up just basically brushing him off, took him to the Hobart Ames, placed him, requalified him for the nationals, one runner up in Alabama. And then won the Missouri with him. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the year before he was retired. Unreal. Unreal. And ran, ran him two hours and 50 minutes or something in the national championship. Yeah, cold off the shelf. Unbelievable. Well, just, you know, that's genetics. That goes back to genetics. And you've either got that or you don't. Randy, another dog that ran at aim seven times that I'm, I'm just, that I'm impressed with. But this dog, he completed the three hours you know, pretty much every year or every other year and never went birdless. And I think in 2017 or 2018, Lester's Jasmine had eight or nine finds. And I'll never forget that because I'd always check the website of an evening. And and when I saw that, it was just, you know, you're blown away when a dog goes through that three hours in those conditions and puts together a performance like that, which is satisfying in itself. Um, but another Alabama championship winner and a runner-up in back-to-back years, two-time winner of the Oklahoma, son of Lester Snowwatch. But for you, his name was Lester's Jasmine. Tough. I mean, it, the unfortunate part, he was, he was sterile. And oh. uh, I would have... Uh, if there was a breeding dog that I thought that would compare to some of those that we've already discussed, he might've passed them. That's easy to say when, when we did, when we never will know, but I can tell you this, he was one of the toughest dogs that, you know, as far as heat could run injured and, uh, and he on his bottom side, I mean, he was out of snow watch, but he, uh, he was a great bird finder that you've already touched on, but on his bottom side, he was silver bullet and white powder close. I think his mama was out of powder. In the, in, out of a, a bullet female mm. and uh, you know those are some old miller bloodlines that you know that brought us to where we are and they were close yeah that's what I always wanted to breed we tried everything i sent him out to kansas i we tried different different type of of uh supplements and we've took him to different vets i would have uh i would have uh wouldn't say killed to that a puppy out of him but i, I would have i'd love to see that dog been bred too and randy another dog that you said left you too early and that was touch of space man and you know i remember him winning the first two trials he was entered in as a first year dog and you just you couldn't help but think that the horizon was never ending for this dog and he didn't win the quail invitational but he did win the quail classic there in kentucky and he ran at ames twice and you know i think in 19 or you know, 20 or whatever those years he, he was he was at ames he had five fines and finished the three hours and um i believe he was a litter mate to touch his gallatin fire i, I I can't remember, you're, but you're okay, you're, yeah. And, but this this was another dog too that just was hot off the press and seemed to be going just anywhere you wanted to. And then you know, sadly, you lost him way too early. Yeah, he was. You know, I already told you. You know, he was tough. He had a different personality. Had a, got a good. You know, he's a great client. To, you know, of mine even today. He also touches cocaine blues. Who's another uh, uh, ring of fire dog? But and he's a young dog. I won runner up with him recently in uh, in in Reno in the California Quail. But that uh, the spaceman was a. Uh, he would have had a great career. I mean, they're, they're you know, not pulling some kind of curtain down, but that dog was on his way of winning a lot of championships, but he was going to get, he required a lot of work, a right. lot of work. Just like Jasmine did to where far away doesn't take that kind of work. You know, it just, same bloodline, same genetics, just different individuals. Yeah, just a just a different rendition of what those genetics have in store and how they can come out and present themselves. Let's let's get let's get a little bit more recent on the string though, Randy. Um, a dog that's the Missouri Open Championship, and I believe 
was the first dog to qualify for that 2023 national kind of winning your end rule that they put in place. Um, Bonner's bulletproof or, or Bo, and, and he's won out at Oklahoma, got runner up at the Oklahoma championship, and you know was second at the Quail Classic that I can remember by speed dial. And who's another dog that you ended up acquiring and have on your string for a period there of time? Tell tell us about Bonner's bulletproof and where this dog's going to go. He uh, he's he, he's a good dog. He's got a uh, you know of course he's out of a Happy Jack female, so the genetics you know he's line bred to Jack. He's a good sized dog, good nose. Derek Bonner says, you know, you hear those stories about, you know, the dog pointed the first bird he ever smelled. Yeah. Derek says that one right there was one of the first ones he ever had that did it. Wow. And he is a good bird dog. And he works with you good, too. But, you know, he's owned by by a great, you know, a dentist and has been an owner of mine for a long time, uh, Dr. Corman. And uh, I think the dog's got a great future. we got to get him back to Grand Junction. He's the kind of dog that I can win that trial with. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, that that's enough to wet your palate there, especially coming from a guy like you that's had so many run there and seen so many run there. But what what about what about acquiring Bonner's bulletproof sire Miller Speed Dial? He was, you know, we know him from 2020 when he won the national championship with Gary, and he ran four other times at Ames. But his last time was with you, and I can remember when that kind of come across the wire that now Randy Anderson had Miller Speed Dial, but he was acquired by one of your owners, Mick Marietta, who's been you know a, a supporter of the NBHA in various capacities. But he he went under your whistle as a seven year old, and he finished the three hours at Ames under you. How, you know that that's that's drama that's drama in the field trial world that a dog like that would transfer hands like that. Tell me a little bit about acquiring Speed Dial. Well, he, uh, Mick, Mick, bought Mick has also world-class bird dogs. And yes. They, they, you know, first of all, you know, they, they wanted, he, he loves that type of dog, you know, the strength. He loved that pedigree. Mick, Mick's not new to the field trial world. He'd won a, the premier dog of the year with Stacy Perkins with us, with the world-class, uh, shoot, I went blank on the rest of name of that dog, but, uh, they'd won the shooting dog, top dog award. And, uh, so he wasn't new to the sport, but they, no. they had acquired a lot of females and they have a program where they're, they're developing dogs. And uh, he purchased him for the breeding part of it. And of course, you know, the, him being a national champion and, and to, you know, to continue on his career, I'm thankful he gave us the opportunity. And uh, as we're speaking, he's, you know, been trying to get him delivered to us to work here on a couple of plantations for a few days and, you know, try to get him ready. If, I think he may be the next dog up at the Invitational. Now, if really? somebody, somebody drops out. Yeah, I talked to Mary Sue earlier and she said he's the next dog up. So, you know, we don't want anything bad to happen to anybody's dog. Sure. Fingers crossed that. Maybe one of them females will come in season or something. I don't even know. If it's <laughs> That's the nice yeah. way of hoping you get a spot. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That, that if we get a spot, then we'll, we'll give him another opportunity. He's been there, and I think he's even one runner up there. I'm not for sure about that. You you may know more about that than me. But the uh, last year we had him, got him ready quick, and uh, you know we won uh, we won with him, won first with him in the national qualifying stake in Conway, which you know that's tight country in yeah. Arkansas, and then we placed him at Guy and Burke Hendricks's place also. But he. Uh, you know, he, he's got those same genetics, you know, the, the happy jack line and some of the same traits. But, you know, he, he's a good sire also. Right, right. And, and and he was purchased largely in part two for that reason. There's there's hopes and there's belief that he will be a stamp in the breed and the pointer. And, you know, Mick, Mick's looking down the line, I'm sure, as this dog is a long staple in his in his uh, stud kennel there. And and I'm sure I'm sure we'll see that later on down the line. And, Randy, th- that's just a list of a, of a cavalcade of dogs that you've had your hands on or a part in that you've been successful with. And now I just want to throw some questions at you and just let you riff a little bit. There's those dogs and and the and the competitors and the classes of dogs they competed with. You've seen the the pointer and the setter throughout time, especially on the on the horseback circuit in all age ranks. But how has the field trial dog changed from those early days of Randy getting his feet wet in the trial world to now? How how has our field trial dog evolved over that time? Well, you know, countries changed too. I don't, you know, I, I don't. There's not a lot of difference. You know, the all age dogs. A lot of it's the judging. I mean, you know, it, there's just a lot of fine counters. When I first got started. All you needed was an all-age dog. Show me you can point a bird and be broke. Show me the race. It was all about the race. 
and that's the way it should be. And I mean, if there's any argument, you know, if there's anything that may be hurting our sport, could be, uh, you know, the judging not being not being crooked or anything like that, just lack of knowledge. It is a hard pill to swallow, though, Randy. I think maybe you'd agree, maybe not, for people that aren't familiar with the all-age ranks because, you know, a bird dog should be what it is in its name. But what has what separates the all-age dog from a lot of our other dogs is this 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 unbelievable and almost abnormal ability to carry itself at long distances while working for the handler and pointing birds. And and I think by by saying the most important or one of the most important attributes of an all-age dog is race, it's it's really the efforts in preserving that unique talent or that unique trait. Is that is that right? Exactly. I mean, even, you know, going let's go all the way back to where I got started with National Bird Hunters. It was a quality. It was in the bylaws, quality, not quantity. Mm. And if there's anything that's changed at every level, I'm not sure. I can't speak for the National Bird Hunters, but at our level, three beats one. You know, yeah. that's a, anybody, you know, one old timer told me one time the way it looks like now, all you need is one of those clickers like an umpire. Has, you <laughs> know, pitch counter. <laughs> it, 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 I even heard one old timer say, my, my, old, my granddaughter can count to three, you know, <laughs> but it, uh, you know, you, you got to be able to separate these dogs. And so many people aren't bird hunting anymore, like a lot of us grew up doing. So, you know, they, they lack that knowledge. But it, it, the all age dog was all about the race. And that's one reason why I did it because I, I like that power dog. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's not a lot of difference. I mean, some of the dogs and some of these shooting dog strings could could win right here. You know, and yeah. they're, they're 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 stout, pretty dogs. And maybe the future of the sport. Bernie told me before he sold, uh, you know, before the the transition from the UKC to the American Field that we all may be in the parking lot together one day. Yeah, and that would be true. You know, he said uh, he hope it wasn't under his watch. Well, it's not going to be now because he's not there. But sure. I believe that it may be sooner than we might anticipate. But it, and really, it may not be a bad deal because it would be a shooting dog deal right now is, is in good shape. I think the National Bird Hunter growth. But I think there's a lot of people. People got has to have an entry level. Yeah. I mean, I can sit here and name off several people that started in the National Bird Hunters, including myself. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have been introduced to, to the field trial game or had an opportunity at all if I wouldn't have uh, jumped in it with both feet and, and got addicted right. and it, it turned into an obsession, you know, and 40 some years down the road, you know, here I'm still doing some of the same stuff, but you know, the thing that, that amazes me is, you know, our trips North and everything is the same thing they did in the 1920s. And they were probably saying the exact same thing that sure, I'm saying sure. right now. You know? Yeah, sure. And you know, it, it, it's a pursuit. It's a pursuit of, of people first and foremost to grow our sport and our game. And we need entry points. But, and I made the comment to you on the phone that, you know, now more than ever, we've got a lot of people that make their living on the NBHA circuit. And you said, yeah, it, it, it was that way too. And I just, I just see the national bird hunters association early on as this, as this place just for bird hunters to have something to do with their dogs outside of their hunting season. And that's, that's very much true then. And it very much is true now, but you know, we're people that, that thrive on competition or we wouldn't do this. And we just want to know where our dogs stack up and where we stack up with our breeding, our training and our handling and stuff. And it serves the same purpose as it did then. And you were talking, we were talking about preserving the all age dog, Randy. And I, I saw a quote and don't, don't quote me on the gentleman's name, but I think it was a gentleman by the name of John Little. And he made this quote at the all American that you heard or said to somebody and he said, boys, if you think you got a broke derby here and you're winning it, you're probably not. Yeah, it was, was at the all American in Kennebec, South Dakota, which was early on. Yeah. And that, he was an old, I mean, you know, he's passed. He was from South Carolina. But them old trainers, I mean, you know, that, that's one thing that the sports change. And training techniques change, too. I mean, equipment, the collars, the whole nine yards, you know, the whole nine yards, and the ways that some of us take a different approach. And, you know, through the uh, the negative reinforcement or, or associate, contact by association and stuff that, you know, would go over some of their head. But, you know, the, the you know, like I said, you know, Bud Epperson kicked out broke derbies in a walking trial back in 1981. Oh, wow. For being too broke. And John Little says the same thing, and that's been within the last 15 years. John Little did not want to see a broke derby on the prairie. And wow. Ben, who was a dear friend of mine, told me one time he hated judging derbies on the prairie 
because the one he liked probably hadn't been worked. You know, <laughs> that's a good point. Been working, they're going to be a little short. And uh, so, but we've created that. I mean, uh, you know, if you get beat by one that was standing there winging shot, right? You know, you got to either do it or or, or get out. And it snowballs. Like it's it starts that snowball effect where you have to have a rope derby too. And you know, I I I, I made a note of that because I appreciated that. I. I'm I'm in the camp that derbies should be as raw as possible. It should look like they've got some fingerprints on them, but they've not got you know grip marks on them, and they should be you know they're, they're judged all across the board. I believe derbies are supposed to be judged on potential, but it's just like what John Little was getting at in his quote there, and, and the other examples you give. You can't you can't judge potential when it's already crafted or it's already been been molded or it's already you know sculpted. You're not you can't judge potential because it's not there anymore. It's it's a finished product, and I think I agree with you on the same plane as we've kind of lost or are losing that, and some people are holding true to that and good on them, but yeah, derbies and broke derbies, hotly contested thing, and I've heard people say countless times, if I bring a derby to trial, it's going to be broke, you know, like it or not, and that's that's fine, that's that's your own prerogative, but those derbies are supposed to be judged on potential. It, you, and and it, you're exactly right, I mean, and that's what the standard says is potential, but it's also been proven in modern time and uh, that it can be done, you know, I mean, the dogs with the touch prefix that you mentioned and uh haney storm warning i mean he's a true end of the march you know registered whelp dog and uh you know you hear all this stuff about aging and all that i know his birthday i'm gallant is the end of april and uh, but training techniques and stuff's changed equipment's changed so it can be done i mean the the the, the breaking these dogs and doing stuff and a lot of it is engagement right but, uh, but the old timers it was it was different i mean they did not want to see a dog that had been overworked as a derby sure sure and Randy, I, you know, people want to know, you know, the ins and outs of what some of our top echelon competitors do when it comes to training and techniques and methods and tools and stuff like that. And and I, I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole because, you know, you open up a can of worms and, and then, you know, it's just one of those things. But I, I would like to hear you give me that 30,000 foot view of your philosophy when it comes to training dogs. If you had to kind of explain to somebody the Randy Anderson method or approach or technique without going into great details, how, how would you describe your approach or your theory on training? Well, it's, you know, kind of contact by association, just like horse training pressure and release and uh you know we've always tried to uh you know in, our, in the development or training part or even if we're going back and try to get on an older dog in his mind is try to get engagement and uh you know try to get that dog to focus more on what he's supposed to be doing but it uh we teach 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 and uh and you know reinforce with the e-collar and uh you know we don't use the e-collar so much as a, as a teaching tool you know you try to conform that with a, with a rope you know mm-hmm. with a check cord once the dog knows it and then, you know, being from the Smiths, it's a silent, you teach it, teach it, and then you name it. You know, we don't make woe being a bad word. And whether you're using a flank collar, you got to have that pressure and release around the flank before you put that collar on. He needs to know how to shut that pressure off before you add any type of stimulation. And, you know, negative reinforcement, people think is a, uh, is something harsh. I mean, negative reinforcement, if I holler woe in a, in a, in a stout demeanor, right. that, that's negative reinforcement. Right. It's not. It's not a flushing whip or anything like that, but just trying to be positive, you know, keeping a dog engaged. And uh, I'm always trying to learn. And Mr. Miller said one time, what works for some people may not work for us. Right. But we always, you know, the flank collar is is our brakes and, you know, the neck collar is our steering wheel and basically the flank collar is to take chase. But it's, you know, the the main thing is positive, you know, and, and, and the other thing is we try to do is we try to stay balanced. I think you can have too much running with no birds or maybe too many birds and no running, too much roading and not enough work. You know, I've been told we need to work their mind, not their muscles. Yeah, yeah. But 
you know, whether you're a retriever trainer, a working dog trainer, a police dog trainer, you have to stay balanced. And uh, that's probably one of the key things I always tell people is is to try to stay balanced. It makes a lot of sense. And it, it goes across other other disciplines with other animals too, horses especially. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and this will go along with that. They were asking about just format and field trials. And I, I kind of told them that a field trial is like, you know, theater. You have the main star, which are the dogs, and you've got the producer, the director, which are the handlers, and then you've got supporting actors. And those supporting actors uh, in a roundabout way are your scout and, you know, the horses that you're setting on. And I think I think it would be worthwhile to hear somebody like you talk about how important both of those supporting roles are, not only in a brace and in a, in a particular run or trial, but in your operation to have a good scout or the availability of a good scout and to set on good horses. How, how important are those things? Well, you know, you got to be well-mounted. And, you know, it's hard to win a field trial on a coat, but it takes so long to, to make a dog horse. I mean, I, I could get you a, a – uh, I can find you a good – good dog prospect a lot easier than i can a good field trial horse prospect but wow. the uh the answer to your question is the uh it, it's a team effort you know and, and that horse and that dog being just what you said you know you got you got everybody but that that scout if that scout's been working with that dog and knows that dog that uh that, that, that's real important and you know i've, I've always been a firm believer and not there's nothing wrong with it and they do it throughout the country but uh, i've always tried to have somebody pretty much full-time that's been a part of those dogs and that way they know every you know every tendency and you know a, a dog depends on us for food the person feeding them is the one that they associate with and so you know i try to and, and you know so much at that feed pan you know if a dog's feeling right yeah. he's a little off or something the way he eats right. and so if you've got somebody that's that, that's a part of that team that knows those same tendencies it, it helps you you know get to get on through to hey this dog's off or i think we may have an issue here we need to get to a vet or but it's still a key out there in the field to try to win a field trial too. You got to, you know, it's a team effort and they're on your team. You always said, you know, the Dallas Cowboys not going to loan their quarterback to, you know, the Redskins. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or now, or now the commanders or whatever that, you know, they're messing yeah. with our teams right. now. I mean, you can't right. even make those analogies anymore. <laughs> There's, there is a thing though that, that needs to be mentioned because we're, our sport is desperate for these people and we need to, we need to champion these people more than we do. And that's, that's our owners. And Randy, you've, you've got this, this, this steady, and such a good roster of owners that have helped put these dogs in these places in the annals of history. And I, we know that you have to have owners to run a business. That, that that goes without saying. But how critical is it to not just have owners, but good owners to be successful at the top level? Well, the uh, you know, an old saying is, you know, what's better than a good dog is a good owner. I mean, a good owner is going to make sure you got the right dog. I mean, he, he wants a good one. And these owners are so supportive, not just to the individuals, dog trainers that are in that program, but they're a key to our sport. There needs to be probably more done to uh you know for our owners than, than they're getting because one time we had a huge audience everybody had a bird dog and you know the publications and stuff there was uh, jack harper or, or I mean, leon covington was in live magazine and uh, uh dogs were in live magazine and yeah. there was a lot more following to our sport i was told it's the oldest competitive sport in the united states yeah yeah i've, I've also seen that and in my mind randy you know I'm, I'm in horse racing to a certain degree and and in this field trial game and there's so much crossover there, albeit at different at different levels, you know. But you have we have people in our field trial game like the Hamiltons that that have dogs on the all age circuit. John Fort, who's had dogs on the circuit. Carl Bowman, who's also been in the thoroughbred world. These are guys that that kind of dabble in both or have at certain times. And it's just proof to me that this sport, maybe we take for granted how big this really was, and maybe could be if maybe if we prop up these owners a little bit more. And we and we give them more of a platform and make it a bigger deal. Now, Randy Anderson wants to see his picture, I'm sure, at the winners' podium and stuff. But nothing is better for Randy's business for his owners to get some recognition, right? Exactly. Yeah, and with without having the ink like we had in the past, that's harder. So there's got to be some type of format to to bring this back to to a podium. 
but that uh you know the future of field trials and one reason why we're in north carolina is because of the jamboree and the uh i think the future of field trials is to make it more of an event i mean we see it in the coonhound industry we see it in, and look what they've done to, to bull riding with the pbr yeah and, yeah uh, the retriever world i think mean, the super retriever series things that's been on television make dog trainers into to uh to nascar drivers and it uh you got to have a podium and i was with a with, with an organization on a pro staff and they uh that was one of the things that the, the marketing company that was hired to do it for them was to put us on a podium if we're not doing good that product's not going to be doing good and exactly. I, I, some of these events that's, that's being sponsored we're, we'll see that sponsorship start dwindling because they're not getting a bang for their buck and it's the same thing kind of for an owner you know if they're not getting a bang for their buck they'll end up doing something else they got to have yeah. the love and the passion for the sport to continue and we uh you know we need to grow this sport it's a great sport someone's asked me one time you know, I told him, I said, I'm a competitive person. Always have been. I've never not remember owning a horse. I mean, I've owned one my entire life that I can remember. Same thing with a sporting dog. And uh, I love the outdoors. And uh, it's everything wrapped up into one. Yeah, I mean, it's, could, it's the marriage you know, of those things. And add the competition side, the competitive nature of yourself in that too. Where where, where are you going to find where those, that triad of things that are, that are near and dear to your heart, where are you going to find that where that meshes? Yeah, it's, there's no way. I mean, it's, and I've, we see stuff that we take for granted. You know, I've, I've seen some mule deer in Canada that were unbelievable. And this list goes on and on and on, you know, yeah. different things that, that people would, would love to see and never have an opportunity that we see while we're out there. But right. the main thing, it's about the dog, you know, and, and that, that performance of that dog. And I've seen some great ones, you know, I've watched Dishon's Go Boy in the National Amateur Quail Championship and I know that was unbelievable. And it stays in my mind. It's instilled. And then I've tried to match it with some, and I probably have, but that was in my younger day and just getting started. It, it's etched in there more than probably any of them that I've done. And actually that dog ended up knocking a fresh chicken with a few minutes to go and didn't even win. Oh. And, but it, it was a heck of a performance. It had everybody in the, you know, standing up in their saddle, but, uh, you know, it, it's a, uh, we, we, anything that we can encourage, you know, these youth trials are, are, have been a, uh, you know that that can get, build some interest as these youngsters continue to to you know go from youth to adult, but uh, you know we need some people now. Yeah, and we need we we talked to you about the importance that I've kind of pushed onto some of our members and and tried to and tried to blow this trumpet a little bit louder is is stakes at our walking trials like gun dog stakes or judgment ceases at flush where you can bring that meat dog and throw him on the ground and at least have a good day, but also might find out that that dog's better than what you thought or it stacks up better, or then maybe just give yourself that justification that maybe you know a little bit of what you're doing when it comes to training and breeding and stuff. And just to see if that interest has a, will grow any from that experience, but it's, it's getting those, those people in the door. But by having people like you on here, we, we also want to show people that th this, this can turn into something far beyond what you'd even thought would happen. I, I don't imagine that Randy Anderson who's got the bird hunting dog and he's just out, you know, looking for coveys would one day find himself at the Carolina Jamboree amongst some of the best dogs in the country doing this for a living and, and handling dogs in the history books and those things. But it's just proof that if you'll just go and do it and give it a try and, and put aside everything else, you might uncover something that might be a lifetime of memories and, and a passion. Absolutely. And that, and that guy that, that, or, or, or gal or, or a youngster that brought that cease to flush dog, all of a sudden he wants to be more competitive and he reaches out and gets him a better dog. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a stepping stone, and, and the National Bird Hunter Organization is very important. But it also was a stepping stone for somebody to to move on into different avenues. You know, uh, Sean Kinkler's grandfather, if I'm not mistaken, and uncle uh, Chamberlain's were their last name, and uh, I may be corrected on that. But they, uh, you know, there probably wouldn't have been a Sean Kinkler if there if there wasn't a National Bird Hunter Organization. Wow, really the, uh, They were the the Chamberlain's were were very early, if not 
uh, you know, the, the, the first director for the National Bird Hunter Organization. Cool. That's really that's really neat how all that history goes back so far, but but still has ties today that are that are so relevant, so relevant. Randy, one thing that comes up with you in conversation over and over is history. You you obviously are a person that's drawn to the game's history, and you I think it's safe to say you romance over it. And there's people in this game that kind of follow along those same lines. Why is the history of this game so important to you specifically? Well, tradition, you know, and you know, history, and is you know, is tradition, and you know, people like Chaz Harris, you know, I've mentioned him a lot, but yeah, you know, you uh thing that was intriguing about him of course he was born in holly springs mississippi and and but he ended up in in my county where delmer smith's from in big cabin he worked for us the, the actually Pennzoil ce griffin took mount riga farms to uh there was 13 pro dog trainers that worked through mount riga in the 20s including dutch epperson which is delmer smith's father-in-law wow. and uh he uh Chez harris won the nationals he had his own car railroad car rented that hauled his dogs <laughs> in canada and uh i've always been a fan of him he was huge for that era you know he was six six and uh Larger big, life. but and his brother-in-law ended up being a pro dog trainer that ended up with john proctor his name was prather robinson and a lot of those family members are still kind of in our area most of them have died off but delmer can tell the stories that's where a lot of my information's come from but you know chez harris won the nationals a lot his, his, his camp was right across the border from where i'm at he was in uh pearson manitoba but that, that's not far from Mantler, North Dakota. But I think about that trip in 1921 that I make in that truck, you know, with, with Sirius satellite radio and air conditioning. <laughs> Leather seats. And a Model T, you know, to work a bird dog. Wow. We're doing the exact same thing now and probably having the same conversation as they were in 1921. They just wouldn't get in a, to do it in a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just <laughs> but, out there in the in the air, in the crisp air, in the crisp Canadian air, and that's just where it lived, and that's why it's so important to me to get these things documented, get this history on some sort of medium. That way people can, you know, find it, discover it, revisit it, and attach themselves to it in some way. And, Randy, you're, you're, you're in a position where words will mean a lot to people getting started or on the outside looking in or that are looking to another level or another avenue in field trials. What, what, what advice would Randy Anderson give to new field trialers? Well, you know, somebody's wanting to get in the sport. They need to pick up a phone and call somebody, you know, that's involved and let them guide you in a direction in a positive manner. And, uh, you know, everybody that I know that carries a title as a professional dog trainer is just that. And uh, they're all, everybody's willing to help, whether they're a walking trainer or a shooting dog trainer and all these trainers. And they they need to find a place where they want to be. You know, they may be a walking dog, a field trailer or or a horseback, but you need, you got to have guidance, you know, and, and, and learn, you know, they're, Guy, a gentleman in the Hall of Fame said he went to every camp he could in Canada to learn what to do and what not to do. Mm. There's a lot of truth of that. The more people you're around, they get involved. There used to be a lot more clubs. I don't know. Joplin, Missouri had a big club. Uh, there was a big club in Fayetteville, Arkansas during the National Bird Hunter. And, you know, join them clubs. I don't know if those clubs even exist anymore. A lot, of them, a lot of them still do, Randy. It's amazing, especially out there in the Midwest and stuff. Man, those clubs, they've got some serious history. And, and you know, there's generations of people in the same family that's now – a part of them. And, and that's one thing that I've learned as I've kind of gotten deeper into the game and met some more of the characters and, and kind of been in and outs of the system there is the, these are approachable people. You're, you are a very approachable person. You might be busy when I call or, you know, you might have to talk later or whatever, just because that's the nature of your game and your business. But you're just like talking to anybody else. Like you've, you're, you're, a, you're a normal guy and you're going to have good opinions, good advice and good help. And if you can't help somebody, I know you and like a lot of other people, you're going to steer them to somebody or someplace else that can. You're not going to leave them 
leave them hanging. And I think that's one of the hurdles that people have to get over. You know, if they want to contact a pro or an established amateur stuff, you, you got to do it first and foremost. And you got to make that connection and start networking with people because like a lot of other avenues and things in life, the field trial world is an incredibly networked system. And those people that are really good at it are almost always networked really well like yourself. Yeah, and that part, you know, has changed with social media and stuff. And that I think the clubs, there needs to be a, a, a big ad campaign to get people more involved. I, I visited with some people with our new, you know, with UKC and, and trying to pipeline people towards us. And there, there's some videos being made as we're speaking. We helped do some photo shoots and some video stuff during the national championship and went and set some stuff up. And they're trying to market our sport and going to get more involved, I think, and trying to help market with some with some videos. Right. The people that they got doing it are very knowledgeable. They've done some uh, produced some fishing shows, and they're not new to the you know new to the production world by no means. But our you know our is so uh, uh, so involved with uh, you know it's, it's been around so long, and we've lost a little bit of that exposure that we once was. I used to say you could probably go to downtown Memphis and start polling people about Grand Junction and the national championship. And they would have heard about it because they read about it in the commercial appeal newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Now you can probably go to Memphis or or right here in where I'm at in Pinehurst, North Carolina, and they don't even know we exist. And that exposure needs to be brought out. I mean, I always said that, you know, the American field should have been putting subscriptions, that, you know, to where they could subscribe in doctor journals or, uh, the, you know, uh, whatever. Not to say you had to be a doctor. Sure. They, need, they needed to get that exposure out to where people knew that we existed. So, right. That's one thing. I mean, there was a, a an equestrian magazine here. That this is a big hunter jumper area. They were out there. I did a little interview with them for a story they're going to write. This guy was raised within ten miles of that barn and had drove by that barn for years and didn't realize that these field trial grounds were set up for bird dog field trials. Really? The that's that's kind of nationwide. If you ever try to explain to somebody what you do, you almost kind of give up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And I, it's part of one of my jobs with the NBHA is is outreach, introduction, and hopefully residual of those people and retention. And explaining to the person with a blank slate with regards to field trials and maybe bird dogs as a whole, it's 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 complex. And I think I think one of the things that makes it complex is we're we're a unique people, A, that we love animals, which isn't unique in itself. But what is unique is to be successful and to have a long or a shot at a long term in this game, you have to love the work. You have to love to clean kennels. You have to love to do those chores that maybe, you know, get mundane or repetitious and stuff. Because if you don't if you don't love those things or at least have a point in time in your life where you do love them, you can't really expect yourself to be the personality that survives the up and downs in this game. This this game will knock you in the chin more times than it won't. But when you hit that peak, when you hit that when you get that picture taken and it's in the field, that that suffices and covers a lot of wrongdoings and a lot of mess ups and a lot of times where you didn't place. And but you gotta love that work. And you're clearly a hard worker. You've built your business on hard work and integrity and and doing things right by your clients and the dogs you have. And and Randy, let's look at the sport now as a whole and let's look at it, you know, I don't know, a decade from now, two decades down the road. How, how does Randy Anderson see our great sport twenty years down the road? Well, I was you know, I was having the same conversation twenty years ago and you know, and here we still are. I think it will continue on. I think that the, there needs to be more promotion for the sport. And I think these field trials need to be more of an event. And, and the, you know, that my definition of that is there needs to be some Chrome added back on, you know, to some yeah. of these events. And I, I've seen drawings at, uh, you know, from the 1960s at the national amateur coil championship. And there's, there looks like there's a hundred people dressed in a suit. Drawings used to be an event Yeah, with electronics and stuff. And the way we do things now, we, we have a drawing somebody's house and we go to the field trial and we get there and we get out and we run our dog and we go home. That didn't used to happen. You went to the field trial, you were there. And a lot of those drawings were done, uh, you know, the night before. It was part of the dinner or whatever. 
and really the drawing is the most important part of the field trial and it is a minimum you know it's a, a minimum requirement to be a sanctioned field trial and, you know I, I look at some of these drawings and they're not they're not out of the hat and that uh, it's, it's the luck of the draw mm. and you know if you hold one person out the whole drawing's messed up but right. it that's just where we're at in, in our life and there's a lot of them that i'm sure have been drawn drawn correctly but right. it uh but that you know it, it, it just needs to be you know these clubs and, and trying to grow these clubs and a lot of these field trials are being put on by one or two people and there needs to be an effort you know a group of effort trying to promote our sport and, yeah and i've watched you know the national bird hunters you know it's almost like you can't you watch your baby grow up because you did you <laughs> part of it but I've, I've seen it go up and down and it looks like it's it's uh probably in our sport right now it's grown more than it's the, the growth of it over the last few years is larger than any any other part of our sport yeah and i'm referring to shooting dog and all age it's wonderful what you all are doing well thank you and and it's been exponential the growth and and but we don't we don't we're trying not to rest on those laurels and, and we're trying to see this as a stewardship you know the inception of this and, and its intentions and its purpose and the service it provides to our to our patrons in our sport but we want it we want the nbha to help carry the load of the trial game itself into the future and that's by help marketing you know help get new new participants new owners new you know finding people with a passion to maybe go professional and helping harbor and promulgate those those interests and those passions and stuff and we've we're taking the lead from the generations of leaders before and it's just so cool that you fall into that and and still have you know a belief in that system and what it still stands for today and I, I just want to thank you from from my from my personal standpoint for coming on here and sharing these stories and I feel like I've made a friend with you and um I keep up I've kept up with you for years along with your other uh friends and patrons on your on on the horseback circuit in the all age ranks and it's it's so cool to sit down with some of you guys and, and get these stories and talk about these dogs and go to these trials and talk about you know the impact that the games had on your life and you were a shoe in to do this podcast and just so thankful you come on hopefully we'll have you on again sometime in the future Randy and just any any parting thoughts that you'd have for our listeners as we close yeah I mean I you know I appreciate you you know it uh, things like this is what brings exposure and that's why anytime I've ever had an opportunity to get on a podium and talk about our sport, I, I try to try to take advantage of it. Yeah. it, uh, it uh, whether it's in writing or a podcast or an interview of any type, I've, uh, I feel like we all need to. And it's, it's, it's people like you and your organization that, that gets the word out there. And in today's time, there's no excuse for not being able to. And uh, with, with the social media and, and a lot of different part of the social media that I know nothing about, uh, the, the different avenues to get the word out and th this is great i appreciate the opportunity to to get on here i mean i think we've been on here a long time yeah the good thing about the podcast are is you can take it in chunks you know you can listen to it for 30 minutes while you're on the lawnmower and then when you got to drive to that trial this weekend you can listen to 45 minutes or an hour of it you can you can pick and choose but this is supposed to serve as a time capsule and i'm just so thrilled to have all this documented and where people can go and listen to this and hear you and the stories and accounts and just want to thank you again thank you randy for joining the breakaway podcast you bet i appreciate it and i'll, I'll end with this if anybody has a question about our sport or a question about a dog or anything feel free to contact me and uh, I'll try to lead you in the right direction. You're a good man, Randy. You're good for the game. You're good for all of us. Thanks again. Thank you. That was the Breakaway Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend, like, and subscribe to all of our social media platforms to stay up to date on everything National Bird Hunters Association and all other field trial-related content. But hopefully, we'll see you next time at the Breakaway.